The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode I'll be talking about Stevie Nicks. Known as the reigning queen of rock and roll, Stevie is known for her distinctive raspy voice, her black winged magical fashion, her unique passionate and spiritual performances and stage persona and her raw and vulnerable songwriting ability that detail both the happy and tragic moments of her life and of those close to her. Stevie would become a star through the encouragement and inspiration of her beloved grandfather to success as both a solo artist and in the legendary band Fleetwood Mac. Stevie Nicks would endure battles with drugs, alcohol, relationships and media scrutiny to become the only female musician in history to make the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. Stevie would inspire many great artists from all walks of life to follow in her footsteps as she would become one of the most influential, beloved and respected musicians of all time. This is the story of Stevie Nicks. This is Lyrics of Their Life. Stevie Nicks was born Stephanie Lynn Nicks on the 26th of May 1948 at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona to her parents Jess and Barbara Nicks. Stephanie's parents were both in their early 20s when Stephanie was born and from very early on she was surrounded by music and creativity as they would often play music for her as she lay in her crib. Stephanie became Stevie when she was just a toddler as she struggled to pronounce her own name and would often say Teedy instead which was later adapted to Stevie. At the age of just four Stevie began singing with her beloved grandfather AJ or Aaron Jess Nick Sr and the two would often perform beautiful duets together which started her lifelong love of singing duets. Stevie's grandfather was extremely supportive and always encouraged her to pursue music as he was a budding country singer himself. He once even paid her 50 cents to get her to play guitar for him at just the age of four. Stevie never took music or singing classes and besides her grandfather's help and influence, she was mainly a self-taught singer, guitarist and pianist later in life. AJ Nix spent most of his life chasing his dream of being a country music star, even going as far as jumping from freight train to freight train to catch rides to different towns where he would gig and get his name out there while earning cash through being a champion pool player and winning prize money and bets. Stevie was lucky enough to tour around with her grandfather at this young age as he performed locally around the Phoenix area, even performing with her in gin mills and bars. He was quite well known within the Arizona area for his country music and always dreamed of making it big. But after realising this might not happen for himself, he gave Stevie the encouragement she needed. Stevie's first performance with her grandfather was singing a duet of Red Savine and Goldie Hill's Are You Mine. Stevie's passion for music was noticeable from early on and her grandfather soon made her a handmade guitar which inspired her further. 
Stevie's parents had met after attending the same university together and also being co-workers and quickly got married after feeling as though it was love at first sight. Stevie's parents settled in Paradise Valley in Phoenix, Arizona and after Stevie was born, Stevie's brother Christopher Nix was born. Stevie's mother became mainly a stay-at-home mother after her birth and liked to keep her close, often not letting her go out much to play with friends. Stevie says that her mother was strict and hard on her at times, but supportive and caring at the same time, and often offered her support if Stevie needed it. Her mother wanted her to be fearless and independent, much like herself, when she was younger, as she came from a poor family and had no choice. Growing up, Stevie and her family were not well off, and her mother would usually hand-knit her clothes to wear as they couldn't afford to buy them. Her mother Barbara also introduced her to fairy tales, magic and mystical stories which helped shape many of her beliefs and interests. Stevie enjoyed making up her own expressive dances and even had a dream of becoming a ballerina. Stevie's upbringing was a generally normal and happy one but she was forced to move towns frequently due to her father being a businessman rising up the ranks to become president and chairman for a foods company that usually moved meat products called Armadile Greyhound Corporation. After the Greyhound Bus Corporation bought Armadile out in the 1970s, as Stevie's father once worked for the famous busing company. Due to her father's important position in the company, he was required to relocate the family on numerous occasions. Stevie would be forced to be the new kid in school numerous times as she started in Phoenix and moved to Albuquerque, El Paso, Salt Lake City, Los Angeles and San Francisco, settling in the California area for some time. Stevie as a teenager began to discover the wonders of artists such as Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, who would inspire her fashion sense and stage persona. While she had always listened to The Supremes, The Four Tops, The Beach Boys and R&B music growing up, she would spend much of her time in her bedroom listening to these artists getting lost in her own form of expressive dance. When Stevie turned 16, she received a Levin Goya guitar as a gift from her parents and that very day she wrote her very first song called I've Loved and I've Lost about a boy that had broken her heart after he had eyes for another girl. After this, she would write at least one song every day, almost for the rest of her life, as she made it a habit to write in her trusty diary every day, where she would summarise her daily happenings, which made for great material for songwriting, and moments that often slip away would never be lost. She would soon write another song called I'm Sad But Not Blue, and it was evident that she had potential and wrote from the heart. Stevie would be an average guitar player, but it was enough to get her by, and her simplistic way of playing helped her write many songs over the years. Stevie would also listen to the Everly Brothers, which she credits to influencing her style of guitar playing. While attending Arcadia High School in California, she met a girl named Robin who would become her best friend, and she discovered and joined a folk rock band that sung mainly vocal harmonies and were called The Changing Times. The project, however, was short-lived, and she soon moved to Palo Alto, California, where she changed schools again, attending Menlo Atherton High School in Atherton, California, in her senior year. It was here where she would meet none other than Lindsay Buckingham. Lindsay was still in junior high, and a year younger than Stevie, when they first laid eyes on one another at a religious youth life club gathering, where many young teens would go to get out of the house and socialise. Stevie was drawn to the attractive and charming Lindsay, who was seated in the corner of the room with his acoustic guitar playing the Mummers and Puppers hit California Dreaming. 
Stevie sat with him and began harmonising and singing along, with the two singing a beautiful duet together. Lindsay loved Stevie's voice and the two had a genuine connection. The two hit it off, but after they parted ways that day, they wouldn't meet again until fate brought them together two years later. Lindsay Buckingham was born on the 3rd of October 1949 and raised in Palo Alto, California, and grew up with his two older brothers, where he was a confident and strong swimmer who swam competitively. But when he discovered music, he decided to head down that path instead. His brother would go on to win a silver medal at the Olympics in 1986, but Lindsay's passion was playing music on bass, acoustic and electric guitar. Guitars had always been a constant in his life, first playing a toy Mickey Mouse guitar constantly as a child before his parents encouraged him by buying him a cheap $35 harmony guitar. Like Stevie, he would never take guitar lessons and was self-taught. After graduating from high school, Stevie reconnected with Lindsay when she started at university at San Jose State University, where she majored in speech communication and aspired to become an English teacher. Lindsay also attended the same university, but soon dropped out and had been performing in a psychedelic rock band named Fritz. He had been performing with the band even back when he first laid eyes on Stevie. Due to two of the band members needing to pull out due to college commitments, it opened the door for Stevie to join along with another new member named Brian Kane. Lindsay called Stevie up and expressed how he would love her to be a part of the band, and despite being a much heavier rock band than she was used to, Stevie felt she had nothing to lose and joined up as she liked Lindsay anyway. Stevie and Lindsay performed together with the Fritz Ray-Ban Memorial Band, or simply known as the Fritz, for a decent period of time, with the two sparking up a romance in the process, connecting through their love of music and songwriting. The now 19-year-old Stevie would perform with the Fritz from 1967 to 1971, as they often played for colleges, high schools and at a range of small venues and events, including several concerts at Santa Clara Fairgrounds. The band consisted of five members, including Stevie on vocals, Lindsay on bass and vocals, Bob Aguirre on drums, Brian Kane on lead guitar, and Javier Pacheco on keyboard. They played a range of covers such as Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild, and a number of originals as Lindsay himself was a great songwriter. Stevie with the Fritz supported well-known bands such as the Moody Blues, Santana, Stevie Miller and even as big as Deep Purple and Stevie's idols Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. With Jimi even dedicating a song to Stevie during his live performance as he said, This is for you babe. Stevie was so flattered and honoured, which was one of the reasons he was such a big influence, stating she learnt grace and humility from Jimi and then spoke about Janis Joplin's influence as she said, From Janice, I learned that to make it as a female musician in a man's world is going to be tough and you need to keep your head held high. It was very true what Janice had said and she was a perfect role model to help Stevie find the courage and determination she needed to make it in an industry and genre, being rock music, that was predominantly male dominated. The Fritz would even record a number of originals at Action Studios and gain quite a solid following. But the band had reached its peak and Lindsay and Stevie could see that the band wouldn't go much further. With the permission of her parents, Stevie would drop out of university to pursue her dreams to make it as a musician on the condition that she returns to study if her dream should not work out. Due to this, her parents cut all of Stevie's allowances and funding and left her to make it on her own. 
1972, the Fritz broke up after producer Keith Olsen spotted Stevie and Lindsay performing with the Fritz at one of only four shows with musician Leon Russell. He thought the two were extremely talented and were being wasted as part of the Fritz. Initially, Keith Olsen wanted just Lindsay, but realising they were dating and were a package deal, he persuaded them to leave the band and to become a duo. He signed the both of them and allowed them to move in with him in LA, where he would kickstart their careers. Lindsay and Stevie had little to no money at all and took the long drive in Stevie's Toyota, nicknamed The Pocket, and set off to chase their dreams as a couple. They arrived in LA and moved in with Keith and in order to pay their way, Stevie took up a number of waitressing jobs and became a caretaker and cleaner for Keith while Lindsay got to work on producing their demo tapes, honing his guitar skills and working on the dream. Stevie and Lindsay would call themselves Buckingham Nicks and recorded a demo tape in LA. Their voices together were incredible and were like nothing that had been heard before. Their voices managed to balance each other out perfectly. They soon produced their debut self-titled album as Keith looked to find them a record deal. Lindsay worked on arranging and recording the instrumentals for the album as he had put down his usual bass guitar for lead electric and acoustic guitar. Stevie continued cleaning and waitressing in the meantime, but times were tough financially. The two barely could afford food and fuel for their car, but did the best they could to get by. Stevie took up a third job working as a hostess at Bob's Big Boy, which was a franchise diner and restaurant. Stevie would also be a waitress during the day at a restaurant called Clementine's, and music would be the main focus for the rest of the night. At one stage, Stevie was working as many as three waitress jobs and two cleaning jobs at once, and even worked for three days as a gentle hygienist, only to realise she hated it, which only pushed her harder to make it in the music business. They were often scared of where they were going to get their money from to pay for rent. Keith Olsen would pay Stevie $250 a month to clean his house twice a week. She did a fantastic job, so Keith helped them find their own apartment as the house became cramped and he wanted his own space back. They soon moved in with a fellow producer by the name of Richard Dashup at his apartment on Fairfax and Orange Grove. The financial situation put much strain on their relationship, but the two held it together. Stevie and Lindsay had wrote their album predominantly about their relationship, about both the good and the bad. It wouldn't take long for Keith Olsen to land Buckingham Nicks, their first record deal, with Polydor. On the 5th of September 1973, Buckingham Nicks released their debut self-titled album, with both of them contributing to five songs each. The album cover would famously display the two of them in a nude embrace on the front cover with their long flowing hair in a black and white colour tone. The image was actually an uncomfortable one for Nix, as she felt forced into doing it. Stevie had spent a total of $639 US on a white blouse for the photo shoot for the album cover with what little money they had, only for it to be rejected by the photographer and Lindsay who instead thought it would be a better idea for them to be captured naked and vulnerable. Stevie revealed how she felt as she was quoted as saying, I was crying when we took that picture, and Lindsay was mad at me. He said, you know, you're just being a child. This is art. And I'm going, this is not art. This is me taking a nude photograph with you, and I don't dig it. I thought, who are you? Don't you know me? I couldn't breathe, but I did it because I felt like a rat in a trap. 
Despite this, it was a solid album that featured some underrated tracks such as Long Distance Winner, Races Are Run, Without a Leg to Stand On, and Don't Let Me Down Again. The album is both folk and blues orientated and includes some great vocals from Stevie and Lindsay and some great instrumentalist tracks from Lindsay titled Django and Stephanie that was written about Stevie of course. They toured the South in the US for a short period where early versions of the song Rhiannon were heard but this would be short lived. While there was much potential there and the album was actually quite good, the label didn't think so and hardly promoted it, which was reflected in its album sales and sadly the two would drop from their record deal with Polydor. Polydor would completely wipe it from their history by stopping any more prints of the album and refused to acknowledge it further. At the time, they were being managed by Martin Pinchinson, who would also drop them from their contract with him as everything, all of a sudden, seemed lost. After experiencing the life of a musician, recording in a large studio, and meeting respected musicians, being dropped would be a wake-up call and bring the couple back down to earth. They were proud of the album they had put together, which hurt them deeply when they were let go. Nick said about the time, We had some great demos, we shopped around, over a period of time we got a deal with Polydor and made our first album, Buckingham Nick's. We had a taste of the big time. We had great musicians in a big grand studio. We were happening. Things were going our way. But up until that point, I had been thinking of quitting it all and going back to school because I was sick of being miserable and I hate being poor. Stevie found the dropping to be soul crushing and she would inform her parents of the bad news and said, if I can't find another deal in six months, I'll be coming home. Both Stevie and Lindsay were disheartened and returned to working day jobs hoping to land something on the side in the hopes of being picked up again. Despite not having much money, Stevie purchased her own piano at the age of 25 and gave up on the guitar, feeling like the piano was more natural and she felt like she couldn't advance her skills any further on the guitar. Due to Lindsay being quite a talented guitarist, he landed a great opportunity to play guitar on tour for the Everly Brothers with Stevie deciding to remain at her apartment and continue working as a cleaner for Keith Olsen and as a waitress. While at home, she vented and wrote a number of songs with two future hits coming out of that time titled Rhiannon and Landslide. As everything seemed hopeless and lost, one fateful moment in 1974 would change Lindsay and Stevie's lives forever. At Sound City Studios, California, in 1974, Fleetwood Mac member Mick Fleetwood was in the building looking for a studio to record their next album at. Stevie and Lindsay's producer Keith Olsen was keen to have them record Fleetwood Mac's album at Sound City, so he decided to encourage Mick to listen to some of his clients' work when he happened to play the track Frozen Love from the Buckingham Nicks album in the studio for him. Mick Fleetwood loved the sound of the track and was interested in meeting Lindsay Buckingham, likening his guitar style to that of Peter Green, their band's founder and former frontman. Mick Fleetwood requested Lindsay's number and Keith didn't hesitate to give it to him. Keith then informed him, but you won't get Lindsay without Stevie. Two months later, guitarist Bob Welch left Fleetwood Mac, opening a spot on guitar with Mick Fleetwood remembering Lindsay and liking his style. On December 31st, New Year's Eve, Mick Fleetwood called up Lindsay Buckingham and offered him a shot to fill the spot left by Bob Welch. But Lindsay at first declined and told him he needed to consult with Stevie as the two were a package deal and he wouldn't join without her and he wasn't too interested at the time in joining their band and playing rock music. 
When Lindsay returned to their apartment to inform Stevie, she couldn't believe how reluctant Lindsay was, as any shot was worth the gamble, as they literally had no money and no other offers coming in. Stevie and Lindsay were invited to meet up with the Fleetwood Mac members for Mexican food on the 1st of January 1975 and all instantly gelled with Stevie forming a strong friendship and bond with the sole female member, Christine McVie. Stevie and Lindsay were told they would both be paid $200 a week in cash with Stevie thinking they had struck gold. They all ventured over to Fleetwood Mac's rehearsal space and jammed together realising just how great and how much fun this was going to be. Stevie and Christine quickly became good friends and would later make a pact that no matter what happens, they will stand up for one another and stick together even if they were in a room full of overbearing men or stars with egos as they knew their worth. But before deciding what to do, Stevie ventured down to the record store and purchased all of Fleetwood Mac's albums to assess if they were the right fit for each other. They listened to the albums back to front and studied their work. Stevie and Lindsay were impressed by what they heard and knew they could add a new dimension to the band and improve their quality. Stevie loved the work of early frontman Peter Green, the blues rock and roll style they had, the song Black Magic Woman, and she loved female member Christine McVie's work. But Lindsay was still second guessing everything. Stevie was a strong woman who wasn't prepared to be pushed around and often took control of the decision making side of things. Although Fleetwood Mac had been more successful in the past than Buckingham Nicks, she knew that herself and Lindsay had what it took to make it, and that they were worthy as they too had supported huge acts before, such as Jimi Hendrix, Chicago, Buffalo Springfield, and performed in front of 70,000 people. Stevie even told Lindsay, we don't even need to stay for long, and literally could use them to get ourselves out there and meet musicians in higher places. This was the notion that Lindsay eventually agreed to, Stevie was at the point of breakdown and couldn't take the life as a poor person anymore. She was tired of struggling and playing at bars and cleaning and waitressing and decided on their behalf that they would do it. Deciding Fleetwood Mac could use Lindsay Buckingham as they needed a solid frontman, they decided to take the both of them on, with 27-year-old Stevie Nicks becoming the second female member of the band, alongside Christine McVie, who had the final say despite the band originally wanting just to have the one female member. Originally, the band didn't expect much from Stevie, but would soon change their minds. Christine McVie's mother was actually a psychic medium, and actually told Christine before they had even heard of Stevie and Lindsay that you will find it on Orange Grove, which funnily enough was the exact location Stevie and Lindsay had been living in their apartment, almost like fate drew the five members together. The band now consisted of the American duo Lindsay Buckingham on guitar and vocals, Stevie Nicks on vocals and percussion, and the English trio of Christine McVie on vocals and keyboard, Christine's husband John McVie on bass, and finally Mick Fleetwood on drums. But Fleetwood Mac didn't exactly start just here, and had actually made a name for themselves back in the UK with a number of hits. Fleetwood Mac were originally formed in London, England in July 1967 and were initially an exciting guitar-focused blues and hippie rock band. After founding member Peter Green left the British band John Mile and the Blues Breakers, he started Fleetwood Mac. Peter Green had originally replaced Eric Clapton in the Blues Breakers for their album A Hard Road that saw him achieve critical acclaim and make a name for himself. Green had played in bands alongside Mick Fleetwood called Shotgun Express with Rod Stewart and Peter B's Lunas. 
with Green suggesting Fleetwood joins the Bluesbreakers when their drummer Ainsley Dunsbar left the band. It was in the Bluesbreakers that drummer Mick Fleetwood played alongside John Mile, Peter Green and bass player John McVie. John Mile gave Peter Green free studio time as a gift where Green, McVie and Fleetwood all recorded five tracks together, including an instrumental song called Fleetwood Mac, being short for Mick Fleetwood and John McVie's names combined. After realising the three had special chemistry, Green suggested the three of them start their own band. McVie was reluctant to join, but Fleetwood was all in. In order to entice John McVie, Green named the band Fleetwood Mac after Mick and John, hoping it would encourage him to join. John declined though, and decided it was safer financially to stay with the Bluesbreakers. Peter Green and Mick Fleetwood kept the Fleetwood Mac name, and started looking for its first official members to accompany them. They discovered guitarist Jeremy Spencer and bass guitarist Bob Brunning under a deal that if John McVie would change his mind, Bob Brunning would make way. After making their debut at the Winter Jazz Festival and playing a couple of gigs from August of 1967 onwards, John McVie eventually decided to join, with Brunning having no choice but to leave the band. Green, Fleetwood, McVie and Spencer got to work on their debut self-titled album that saw it peak at number 4 on the UK charts. They later released the songs Need Your Love So Bad and Black Magic Woman that would reach the top 30 each and would later be released by Santana years later, becoming a top 5 hit for him. They also released the mystical instrumental soulful and bluesy track Albatross that became their first number 1 hit in the UK. Fleetwood Mac would rise up the charts as a popular new band in the late 60s and early 70s as their album Mr Wonderful reached number 10 in 1968. They made their TV debut in 1968 performing Shake Your Moneymaker and Peter Green was seen as the star of the band where they soon became the hottest band around on the British scene. Then their album Play On peaked at number 6 in 1969 but their success started to diminish after their 1969 hits Man of the World and Oh Well reached number 2 in the UK. Play On was a decent album but the band themselves weren't fond of it. Soon after its release, Peter Green started to struggle and left the group due to problems with drug abuse such as acid and LSD, and his mental health had significantly declined. Green would be seen as a massive loss for the band. At this stage, they were a huge hit in the UK and Europe, but hadn't cracked the US. From 1970 to 1974, they released the albums Kiln House, Future Games, Bear Trees, Penguin, Mystery to Me and Heroes Are Hard to Find, with their UK charting becoming non-existent, but their popularity grew slightly in the US as they began touring there and based themselves in the States from 1974 onwards. They got stuck in a cycle of producing solid but underwhelming albums with no standout hits and nine lineup changes which frustrated Mick Fleetwood. Over the years the band would undergo a range of personnel changes with Christine Perfect who would marry John McVie to become Christine McVie featuring on Fleetwood Mac's 1968 album Mr Wonderful on keyboards as a guest musician before officially joining in 1971. Christine added a sense of calm and grounded the band, becoming the first female member. Christine would influence the band's change in style to a softer rock and bluesy ballad style. Fleetwood Mac would also go through 18-year-old talented guitarist Danny Kerwin, who left the band after a brawl with Bob Welch, Jeremy Spencer who disappeared one day after finding God, after he popped out to buy a magazine one evening and not returning, only to discover that he had joined a cult by the name of Children of God. Dave Walker was fired for simply not fitting in well. 
Bob Weston was let go two years after having an affair with Mick Fleetwood's model wife, Jenny Boyd. And finally, Bob Welch quit due to his solo pursuit around the time Lindsay was discovered. Welch hadn't fit in well with the band and had a bad alcohol problem and often clashed with Mick Fleetwood as Bob wanted to chase a solo career like he had done prior to Fleetwood Mac. The stress of constant member changes put strain on Christine and John McVie's relationship and Mick Fleetwood started to miss his kids as he was touring a lot. When Welsh left in 1973, things started to implode and they feared that they would have no choice but to disband. As they didn't want to tour in late 1973, without their knowledge, their management hired a bogus lineup of Fleetwood Mac to tour on their behalf. They played seven shows before the real Fleetwood Mac members and fans caught on. It caused much controversy for the real band and almost tarnaged their image. They decided they needed to look to America to add something different to their band that would appeal to the US audience and revive their dying image. It was now only John McVie, Christine McVie and Mick Fleetwood left at this stage before Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham were recruited, becoming the classic lineup of Fleetwood Mac. Christine McVie was born on the 12th of July in Bath, Lancashire and brought up around Birmingham in England. She was raised by her concert violinist and music lecturer father, Cyril Perfect, and physic medium and faith healer, Beatrice Perfect. She was first introduced to the piano around age four and got more serious about music when she was 11, where she had classical training until the age of 15, only to take a liking to rock and roll music after her brother introduced her to Fats Domino and the Everly Brothers. She went on to study sculpturing at art college with a dream of becoming an art teacher. She started to become interested in the blues scene and soon joined a short-lived band named Sounds of Blue. She later graduated with her arts degree but couldn't afford to pursue that passion, so instead she moved to London, where she found herself working as a department store window dresser. In 1967, she would join a blues band called Chicken Shack, where she sang backing vocals and played piano and keyboard. They released two albums with McVie on vocals when they had their biggest hit, which was a cover version of Etta James called I'd Rather Go Blind, which reached number 14 on the UK chart in 1969. In 1968, Christine Perfect became a McVie after meeting and marrying John McVie. The two bands would often cross paths at gigs, which is how the two met. They quickly became romantic and married only a few weeks later. She quit Chicken Shack in 1969, becoming a housewife, which led her to working with her husband's band Fleetwood Mac and joining them in 1971 after Peter Green's departure. John McVie was born on the 26th of November 1946 in Ealing, Middlesex, West London. He tragically lost his sister at a young age and attended a good school. At age 14, he started playing the trumpet and playing guitar for local bands called The Strangers and Crusaders, often covering songs by the instrumentalist band The Shadows and playing at weddings and parties. Due to his best friends being decent guitar players, he switched his focus to bass. He would initially remove the two bottom strings from his electric guitar to make a bass until his father rewarded him with a brand new Fender bass guitar. At age 17, John left school and studied for a total of nine months to become a tax inspector, but that was until he found his first adult band called John Mile and the Blues Breakers, after he was referred to John Mile for the gig, where he met Mick Fleetwood and the rest was history. Mick Fleetwood was born on the 24th of June 1947 in Cornwall. He would be exposed to a number of cultures when he was young, as his father was in the Air Force, and they would move to Egypt and Norway, where he would attend school there. 
He struggled in school, but became fluent in speaking Norwegian and was often a dreamer. When returning to England for high school, he struggled to adapt to the English language and often struggled with exams, but excelled at fencing, drama and acting, often in comical scenes wearing drag. He would turn his focus away from school to taking up the drums at age 13 after his parents purchased him a kit. His dad was a casual drummer and both parents were encouraging of his creative side. Like John McVie, he was also inspired by the Shadows and the Everly Brothers, having a keen interest in their drummer Tony Meehan. At just the age of 15, he would drop out of school to pursue his aspirations as a drummer by moving to London, where he worked at the Liberty department store before joining a band called The Chains, where he had the opportunity to support the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds. He joined the Bow Street Runners briefly before moving on to the Peter B's, Shotgun Express, the Blues Breakers, and then initiating Fleetwood Mac with Peter Green. Now that Mick, John, Christine, Lindsay, and of course Stevie were ready to get to work on their first album together, they had to work out the dynamics of the band. Christine was happy to be on vocals and writing music, but loved having the two lead vocalists coming in so she could fall back behind her keyboard as she wasn't keen on being a front woman. Stevie and Lindsay would have to adapt their American accents to the British Christine McVie's vocals, but once they did, their voices together sounded amazing. Buckingham and Nicks brought character and charisma to the band, as Christine and John were quite reserved British people, while Mick was known to be the joker of the band and rather enthusiastic, which can be seen in live performances. Having Stevie and Lindsay join only improved Christine's writing style, as the three of them now had to compete for slots on their albums. From January 1975, Fleetwood Mac got to work on their 10th studio album, but first featuring Stevie and Lindsay. As they thought it was like a fresh start for the band, they would self-title the album Fleetwood Mac for the second time in their history, and would become known as the White Album. The album would only take three months to put together, and Stevie describes the experience as incredibly enjoying and easy at first, as it was all fresh and new. On the 11th of July, 1975, Fleetwood Mac released their self-titled album, Fleetwood Mac, to the world under Reprise Records. The album went to number one in the US, number two in Canada, three in Norway and Australia, and four in New Zealand, while in the UK it only reached number 23, showing the UK had gone cold on the band for selling out to the US. Before Lindsay and Stevie had joined the band, Fleetwood Mac over time had sold 11.8 million copies of their first nine albums combined, while the White Album itself would almost beat this number alone and would go on to sell 9.4 million copies worldwide. Quite a statement for the new look lineup, proving they are in fact the classic and most popular one. Lindsay Buckingham would open the album on lead vocals and wrote the song Monday Morning, which was a great track that was originally intended to feature on Buckingham Nick's album. The new look Fleetwood Mac album continued to impress with the new track Warm Ways, with Christine McVie providing her soothing and calming vocals in this mellow blues folk ballad. Lindsay would have his second song on lead vocals with Blue Letter, which was the only song not written by a Fleetwood Mac band member on the album. So far, Stevie Nicks had just added backing vocals and harmonies, but on the next track titled Rhiannon, that was released as a single on the 4th of February 1976, will consolidate Stevie as a force to be reckoned with. Stevie's vocals on the mystical track were unique and captivating. She often sings with her strong raspy but shaky voice that almost sounds like a yodeler or country singer at times. 
This was only heightened by her performances dressed in a black dress or shawl like a witch, and wearing her black platform boots where she would become lost in expressive dance, almost like she was possessed. She would dance like a ballerina and perform her iconic swaying dance as she holds her skirt. It was a unique and new style that attracted female and male fans to the band, taking a keen interest in the mystical but beautiful Stevie Nicks. Stevie's live performances of the track would become a highlight of their shows, and the fans wanted more and more from the enchanting, talented newcomer, with fans often showing up to shows from here on out, dressing like Stevie. During live performances, Stevie would reach the climax of the song, where her vocals would go to another level, where drummer Mick Fleetwood said, Her Rhiannon in those days was like an exorcism. Sometimes, Stevie would put so much into a performance that her voice would strain, and occasionally her show would have to be cancelled due to the strain on her voice. She would suffer from these issues for most of her career. Stevie was inspired to write Rhiannon after reading a novel called The Triad that was written by Mary Bartlett Leader. The story talks of witchcraft and spiritual themes, with the main plot centering around a woman named Branwen, becoming possessed by an entity named Rhiannon, who was a famous Welsh witch, or deity, and part of early British folklore, who was often seen riding a white horse, with three birds, in tow, that possessed the ability to heal. According to legend, Rhiannon was known as a Welsh goddess, who represented fertility, and also the moon, who turned against the gods to marry a normal, mortal man. In return, the gods purposely framed her with the murder of her very own son to the mortal man, where she is then made to confess to the public at the gates of the city. Stevie was unaware of this story before writing the song, but decided it fit in well with the theme anyway. She wrote a number of different tracks relating to the deity that were unreleased called Stay Away and Maker of Birds, and once thought she could turn it into a film or musical or a cartoon. The lyrics for Rhiannon are very mystical, dark and unique, and is simply great poetry, with the lines, Rhiannon rings like a bell through the night, and wouldn't you love to love her, takes to the sky like a bird in flight, and who will be your lover, and the line, she is like a cat in the dark, and then, she is the darkness, she rules her life like a fine skylark, and when the sky is starless, all your life you've never seen a woman taken by the wind, would you stay if she promised you heaven? Will you ever win? Stevie would always be a very spiritual person and would often bring a dream catcher on tour and into the studio with her. Rhiannon would go to number 4 in Canada, number 11 on the US Hot 100 and number 13 on the Australian chart while only making it to number 46 in the UK upon re-release. The song would go on to feature on the Rolling Stone magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list coming in at number 488. The song became so popular that it even influenced a surge in the name Rhiannon, being given to newborns at the time. Stevie would have a second great tune up her sleeve with the beautiful acoustic ballad, Landslide. The song, although legendary, actually didn't chart too well by only reaching number 10 in the US and number 21 in Canada on their respective adult contemporary charts, while peaking just outside the top 50 on the US Hot 100 at number 51. Despite this, it would sell over 2 million copies and received extensive radio airtime, despite not being released as a single and is seen as one of the band's greatest tracks. The song Landslide describes the scenery of Aspen, Colorado, where Stevie wrote the song while visiting friends. While the main theme of the song speaks of being dropped from her record deal, contemplating her relationship with Lindsay and questioning herself over what to do next as she ponders going back to university. 
Stevie said about the song, looking out at the Rocky Mountains, pondering the avalanche of everything that had come crashing down on us. At that moment, my life truly felt like a landslide in many ways. Stevie's lyrics are simply beautiful and telling of the struggling times in her life as she delivers the descriptive lines, I took my love, I took it down, climbed a mountain, and I turned around, and I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills till the landslide brought me down. O mirror in the sky, what is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the seasons of my life? Well, I've been afraid of changing, because I've built my life around you. But times make you bolder, even children get older, and I'm getting older too. Stevie added much later in life that the song was also slightly influenced by her father as she details the events that transpired that inspired the moving song as she is quoted as saying, My dad did have something to do with it, but he absolutely thinks that he was the whole complete reason it was ever written. I guess it was about September 1974. I was home at my dad and mum's house in Phoenix, and my father said, You know, you really put a lot of time into this, referring to Stevie's musical aspirations. Maybe you should give this six more months, and if you want to go back to school, we'll pay for it. Basically, you can do whatever you want, and we'll pay for it. I have wonderful parents, and I went, cool. I can do that. Lindsay and I went up to Aspen and we went to somebody's incredible house and they had a piano and I had my guitar with me and I went into their living room looking out over the incredible Aspen Skyway and I wrote Landslide. Three months later, Mick Fleetwood called and asked us to join Fleetwood Mac. The track over my head that featured Christine McVie on vocals rose to number 9 in Canada, 20 in the US, received some airplay across Australia and the UK. The next track was called Crystal and was reproduced from Buckingham Nick's album featuring Lindsay on vocals. The album was brilliant and only got better as it went on with tracks like Say You Love Me reaching number 11 in the US with Christine McVie writing and on lead vocals. The bluesy rock tune World Turning featuring a collaboration between Lindsay and Christine and wrapping up with Sugar Daddy by Christine and I'm So Afraid by Lindsay that was originally intended for Buckingham Nick's. According to Keith Olsen, Stevie was slightly annoyed by having little input on the album other than backing vocals and her two originals she had already wrote years prior. From the 15th of May 1975 to August 30th 1976, Stevie Nicks would tour with Fleetwood Mac across the US and Canada, performing a total of 128 shows as a lead vocalist, backing vocalist and utilising her trusty and iconic tambourine. After they toured, Lindsay and Stevie combined were close to being millionaires. Stevie described this time as a carefree and enjoyable experience as they lapped up the success of their first album, enjoyed photo shoots together and became a tight-knit family. The only thing Stevie disliked was the assistance and constant pampering and makeup that drove her crazy as she was used to being an independent woman. This newfound success, fame and fortune would be seen by all members of the band and seemed to create problems for them. Not only was money getting in the way, but Lindsay and Stevie's relationship started to fall apart, along with John McVie's relationship with wife and bandmate Christine McVie, and Mick Fleetwood was starting to go through the proceedings of divorce with his wife Jenny after finding out she had been having an affair with another man while he was on tour, while his alcoholism and cocaine habit were getting in the way. The stress of touring and being around each other non-stop becoming too much for the band and affecting their home lives. 
Pressure was mounting on the band to get back in the studio and back up their latest album with another blockbuster, while drugs and alcohol started to become a significant problem for the band. Six months of non-stop touring forced the McVees to officially divorce while Stevie and Lindsay had finally broken off their long-term relationship in 1975. Stevie and Lindsay would break up over a bad fight, with Stevie saying, We're done. I think that it's over. But no matter what, we will keep the band together. It became difficult remaining in the same band, showing up to rehearsals, side by side and performing on stage together, pretending to be happy. Lindsay would blame them joining Fleetwood Mac for their breakup and claims they would have still been together otherwise. While this would have proven to be the end of most other bands, Stevie and the members of Fleetwood Mac saw the band as bigger and more important than their own personal issues and egos and decided to stick together to continue making great music as they loved the band they had formed. Despite this bond, Stevie and Lindsay would hardly talk to one another unless it had something to do with Fleetwood Mac, but nothing personal would be discussed. Fleetwood Mac decided to part ways with Keith Olsen over rhythm section disputes, instead bringing in a company called CD Management to represent them. With all these relationship breakdowns occurring, the media began jumping on the bandwagon and began starting ludicrous rumours of their own stating that Lindsay and Stevie were raising Mick Fleetwood's daughter after being photographed together with her, that founding member Peter Green, Jeremy Spencer and Danny Kerwin were looking to rejoin the band and that Christine McVie was bedridden in hospital with a mysterious illness. Instead of beating themselves up over these claims and these tough and emotional private times, the members of Fleetwood Mac would hit back at those spreading lies and rumours with an album like none other before, silencing the critics and showing the world just how talented they are. This album would be fittingly titled Rumours and was recorded from February to August 1976 and is said to have been one of the most challenging of their career. They began the recording process at the record plant in Sausalito, California. The recording studio was situated in an old large wooden building with several small recording rooms that were in fact windowless. All the band members except for Mick Fleetwood hated the studio and asked to record from home, but Mick held firm. While in Sausalito, Stevie and Christine would live in two condominiums together located by the city harbour while the three men in the band shared the studio's lodge up in the hills. The album was originally going to be called Yesterday's Gone, with Lindsay taking charge of most sessions as he looked to create a more pop-centred approach, which ultimately caused problems between himself and John McVie. John didn't like Lindsay coming in and taking over, as he was not an original member, and felt slightly threatened. This may have also been due to the clear musical chemistry between Lindsay and Christine, who were collaborating beautifully to come up with the structure of the tracks on the album. Once the work was done for the day, the bandmates would go their separate ways instead of hanging out together. It was quite a toxic social life for the band, as being located in Sausalito was risky, as the area was still heavily entrenched in the 60s and early 70s hippie drug culture. Cocaine and marijuana was easily accessible and readily available, and it began showing up in the studio more and more regularly. Stevie and Lindsay had first tried cocaine back when Stevie was cleaning for Keith Olsen, when she came across lines of the drug on Keith's bench tops and decided to try it for herself. She soon introduced Lindsay to it, but Stevie especially became addicted to the drug. She described a perfect night in at the time, was lighting some candles, having a glass of brandy, snorting some coke, and writing some songs. But then the problem escalated when it became habitual, and when they had run out and there was none at her exposal, it forced her to seek it out herself, 
purchasing from seedy dealers due to the sudden abundance of cash flow and their success and starting her terrible addiction to the drug from 1976 onwards. Many sleepless nights and benders high on cocaine would become highly influential on the album's production. Owner of the studio Chris Stone described the time as he was quoted as saying, The band would come in at 7 at night, have a big feast, party till 1 or 2 in the morning, and then they were so whacked out that they couldn't do anything. Their indulgence in this behaviour contributed to the long drawn out process of recording the album, while co-producer Ken Calliat described Lindsay Buckingham as a nervous Nelly that was often paranoid and always looking to roll a joint. Mick Fleetwood got heavily into cocaine and could be clearly seen in live performances, tripping out and looking extremely sweaty and uncomfortable and becoming addicted to the drug for almost 20 years. While John McVie's alcoholism became much worse, describing himself much later in life as a bad person when he drinks. The album took so long to make as overdubs were heavily used with instrumental parts almost always done separately due to tensions. Lindsay explained these times as he said, We had to go through this elaborate exercise of denial, keeping our personal feelings in one corner of the room while trying to be professional in the other. The band was spending around 20 hours a day together at one time, which also caused tensions within the band, but they decided they had to be bigger and rise above these challenges as their fans and the world were counting on them and they couldn't walk away from the success they had just created. Stevie would often attempt to be the peace mediator in the band and attempt to defuse tensions and unite them with Christine often having her back. All in all, they would put every ounce of emotion into their music, putting their feelings and raw emotions on the line for the world to hear. And with their pain and heartache came great music. They set out to have an album of hits and fans wouldn't be disappointed. A frustrated Stevie Nicks would write and sing on four of the 11 tracks on the album, with Lindsay having a hand in six and Christine with five. Nicks was again disappointed at her share of original tracks on the album, but would have the last laugh by bagging the biggest hit on the album and Fleetwood Mac's career in the US with Dreams. During December 1976, Fleetwood Mac released their first song from the album Rumours, titled Go Your Own Way. Go Your Own Way would become a huge hit for the band, reaching number one in Belgium and the Netherlands, and reaching number four in South Africa, 10 in the US, 11 in Canada, and 20 in Australia, but only reached number 38 in the UK. The song was huge on radio and would live on for years to come, featuring in a range of films, advertisements, and TV shows. It was written and sung by Lindsay Buckingham and speaks about his relationship with Stevie Nicks. Lindsay wrote the song after having a number of screaming matches with Stevie at a house the band were renting together at one time in Florida, where Mick Fleetwood claims that it had a distinctively bad vibe to it, as if it were haunted, which did nothing to help matters. The song evidently details Lindsay's hurt feelings towards Stevie, as he sings, Loving you isn't the right thing to do. How can I ever change things that I feel? If I could, maybe I'd give you my world. How can I when you won't take it from me? He sings the chorus before returning to the verse where he sings the lines, Tell me why everything turned around. Packing up, shacking up, is all you want to do. Towards the end of the song, Lindsay comes to the realisation that Stevie can go her own way and he is finally done. It's incredibly brave of the two of them to stick together in this band when their personal thoughts and feelings are being projected onto each other and shared to the world. Lindsay is obviously feeling cut by Stevie breaking off their relationship and is clearly upset with her feeling like she wants to move on. Stevie would say about the song that it was certainly a message within a song 
and not a very nice one at that. She was especially offended by the line referring to her wanting to shack up with others as she was also quoted as saying that the song was angry, nasty and extremely disrespectful. The single would be accompanied by the B-side by Stevie Nicks called Silver Springs. Stevie was quite angry and upset that it didn't make the cut onto the main album. Stevie wrote the song about what could have been, as she said in relation to a track, I wrote Silver Springs about Lindsay, and we were in Maryland somewhere driving under a freeway sign that said Silver Springs Maryland, and I loved the name. Silver Springs sounded like a pretty fabulous place to me, and you could be my Silver Springs. That's just a whole symbolic thing of what you could have been to me. The song almost caused the band to split due to the slow tempo of the song, causing problems with what the band's vision was, as Mick didn't like the idea of having too many slow ballads on the album, along with it hurting Lindsay as it was quite personal. Stevie details her feelings that Lindsay never let her love him or allowed himself to open up while also speaking about his eyes wandering for other women while they were together. This tit-for-tat songwriting from the two made for very interesting and raw material and the songs about their turbulent breakup wouldn't stop there. Following the successful release of Go Your Own Way, Fleetwood Mac would next officially release the album Rumours on the 4th of February 1977. The album was a mega hit and would be heralded as one of the greatest albums to ever hit shelves. It soared to number one in seven countries, including Australia, New Zealand, the US and the UK. It displaced the Eagles from the top spot and would stay at number one for eight months in the US. The stunning album cover, famously depicting a confident-looking McFleetwood perching his leg over a stool with what appears to be brass balls dangling between his legs as he gazes across at Stevie Nicks, who is expressively embracing Mick, dressed in her Rhiannon-era style clothing with her cape, black dress and ballet shoes as it is shot in a black-and-white filter. The album from its release received rave reviews and perfect scores across the board, with critics often applauding the band for delivering a no-filler album, which is exactly what they intended on doing. The album would appeal to a wide adult audience and was like a soap opera on a record that was relatable to many experiencing similar relationship issues in their life. Rumours would eventually go 13 times platinum in Australia, the UK and New Zealand, and two times diamond in Canada and the US selling a whopping 20 million copies in the US alone and a further 8.6 million copies in Europe and eventually totaling 35 to 40 million copies sold worldwide, placing it inside the top 10 for albums sold with the likes of Michael Jackson's Thriller and ACDC's Back in Black. The album would remain at number one for a total of 31 non-consecutive weeks on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart where it became their second number one album in a row there. By as early as March, just one month after its release, it incredibly sold 10 million copies worldwide, with the American fans loving it, swooping in to purchase 8 million copies themselves. Some estimations even go as far as 45 million copies being sold worldwide. The album would see the band and their producers win Album of the Year at the Grammys in 1978, and would go on to spend a crazy 800 weeks on the UK chart. As rumours hit shelves and set records, Fleetwood Mac were quickly becoming the hottest band on the scene. They released their second single from the album, titled Dreams, on the 24th of March 1977 that was written and sung by Stevie Nicks. Stevie best described the song herself as she said, Dreams and Go Your Own Way are what I call the twin songs. They're the same song written by two people about the same relationship. 
Dreams would peak at number one in the US and Canada, went to number eight in the Netherlands, finished inside the top 20 in Australia and New Zealand, and reached number 24 in the UK. It was a huge hit on radio that saw Stevie's importance in the band become noticed, going on to sell over 1.6 million copies of the single worldwide. Stevie revealed that she wrote the song in 1976 in Sausalito, California, as she said, One day when I wasn't required in the main studio, I took a Fender Rhodes piano and went into another studio that was said to belong to Sly Stone of Sly and the Family Stone. It was a black and red room with a sunken pit in the middle where there was a piano and a big black velvet bed with Victorian drapes. I sat down on the bed with my keyboard in front of me. I found a drum pattern, switched my little cassette player on, and wrote Dreams in about 10 minutes. Right away I liked the fact that I was doing something with a dance beat, because that made it feel a little unusual for me. Stevie would write the song about her breakup with Lindsay, and would fire a few shots back at him after he embarrassed her with Go Your Own Way. In Dreams, Stevie produced the unforgettable line, Thunder only happens when it's raining, players only love when they are playing. Say women, they will come and they will go. When the rain washes you clean, you'll know. While the opening verse is just as personal as she sings to Lindsay, Now here you go again, you say you want freedom. Well who am I to keep you down? It's only right that you should play the way you feel it. But listen carefully to the sound of your loneliness. Like a heartbeat drives you mad in the stillness of remembering what you had and what you lost. Stevie's lyrics were simply beautiful and poetic in this track and incredibly moving and from the heart as she delivers every word in a simply mesmerising and naturally shaky vocal style. Stevie shows she isn't afraid to stand her ground as she refuses to take any crap from Lindsay and would inspire many women just like her to do the same. Despite the obvious bitterness and anger surrounding their public breakup, Stevie revealed in a 2009 interview I remember the night I wrote Dreams. I walked in and handed a cassette of the song to Lindsay. It was a rough take, just me singing solo and playing piano. Even though he was mad at me at the time, Lindsay played it and then looked up at me and smiled. What was going on between us was sad. We were couples who couldn't make it through, but as musicians, we still respected each other and we got some brilliant songs out of it. The magical thing about the band was despite their differences, they managed to accompany each other brilliantly improving songs that otherwise would have been lacking without each other's input. As Christine McVie added, Dreams developed in a bizarre way. When Stevie first played it for me on piano, it was just three chords and one note in the left hand. I thought, this is really boring, but the Lindsay genius came into play and he fashioned three sections out of identical chords, making each section sound completely different. He created the impression that there's a thread running through the whole thing. Stevie backed Christine's initial thoughts as she said, They weren't nuts about it, but I said please, please record this song. At least try it. Because the way I play things sometimes, you really have to listen. It was recorded the following day, but the band didn't hold much faith in the song, except for Stevie. In the end, Stevie would ultimately have the last laugh. Following the release of the mass hit Dreams, the next single Don't Stop was released in April 1977, featuring both Buckingham and Christine McVie on vocals and being written by Christine. It reached number one in Canada, three in the US, four in the Netherlands, and just outside the top 30 in both Australia and the UK. The song was actually written about the end of Christine's marriage to John McVie and moving forward, but was written and sung in a much more positive and optimistic light compared to Lindsay and Stevie's work about one another. The final single from Rumours was titled You Make Loving Fun 
and was once again written by the talented Christine McVie. You Make Loving Fun was actually written about having an affair with Fleetwood Mac's lighting director, Curry Grant, while she was in the process of divorcing John. She originally told John the song was instead about her dog, as a means of avoiding any conflict over the song. John wouldn't realise the true meaning of the song for many, many years to come, and by the time he found out, it didn't seem to faze him too much. The track would reach number 7 in Canada, and number 9 in the US. Christine would also write and provide vocals on the beautiful ballad Songbird that was in some way about the end of her marriage with John, but also written from the perspective of another. As a sad song depicts the bittersweet ending to a relationship and still having love for that person, despite not wanting to be with them anymore. This song was incredibly important according to Christine in providing the members of the band with a sense of peace and the importance of sticking together and realising how much they had been through together and had overcome. Christine sung the song beautifully with her gentle and warm British voice and would often perform this as the final song of their live shows, bringing tears to the eyes of her ex John and Mick. The final track of Christine's was Oh Daddy, which she wrote about Mick, Big Daddy Fleetwood, being the glue that held the band together. One song in particular titled The Chain would symbolise the bond the band had with one another despite their relationship breakdowns threatening to get in the way. All five members contributed to writing this song as Buckingham, Nicks, and Christine McVie provided the vocals. Despite not being a single, it would reach the top 30 in the US on their rock charts and has become a song of unification and the unbreakable bond they shared. Much of the lyrics were actually written by Stevie before Christine began reworking them with her, while much of the instrumentals were spliced together from a range of previous works. Other great tracks on the album included Lindsay Buckingham's Secondhand News, once again written about Stevie and their breakup. He speaks of the struggles of living with and without her, trust issues and finding confidence after meeting a number of women that had helped build him back up again, as he delivers the iconic line, I know there's nothing to say, someone has taken my place. When times go bad, when times go rough, won't you lay me down in the tall grass and let me do my stuff? While the mainly instrumental track, titled Never Going Back Again, was written about a brief unsatisfying fling he had with another woman after the breakup with Stevie. The last tracks to be mentioned that featured on the Rumours album, titled Gold Dust Woman and I Don't Wanna Know, were written by Stevie Nicks. Stevie wrote I Don't Wanna Know back in her days with Buckingham Nicks, as they had planned on a second album before being dropped. The track was once again written about the early times in their relationship. While she liked the song of her own, the track Silver Springs ultimately missed out due to this one as the band favoured it more. She would later reveal that she came around on the song, but was still disappointed Silver Springs was overlooked. Gold Dust Woman was written and recorded after a lengthy night and day of recording at 4am. After almost 8 attempts at the vocals, Stevie wasn't happy with what she had produced and wanted to try again. Stevie wrapped her face, except for her mouth, with her black scarf, veiling her senses and began thinking of emotional times in her life, especially those related to Lindsay, and belted out her best recording yet. The song appears to address her dealings with drugs such as cocaine and gold dust being confirmed as a metaphor for cocaine, and of course her breakup as she revealed later in life. Gold Dust Woman was my kind of symbolic look at somebody going through a bad relationship doing a lot of drugs and trying to make it, trying to live, trying to get through it, as Stevie provides a relative line singing, rock on gold dust woman, take your silver spoon, dig your grave, heartless challenge, pick your path and I'll pray. 
The experimental Mick Fleetwood even smashed sheets of glass to accompany Stevie's vocals, adding another dimension to the track. As Fleetwood Mac conquered the music world with rumours, they hit the tour circuit beginning in February 1977 and ending in August 1978, performing a total of 96 shows across the US and Canada, the UK, Europe, Australia, New Zealand and Japan. While touring in New Zealand during November 1977, Stevie and Mick Fleetwood found themselves hooking up at a cocaine-filled party after a show and secretly began an affair. Mick was technically still married to his wife Jenny, despite divorce proceedings being underway, as the two had recently attempted to give things a go once again. Mick believed the affair was very meaningful, and he most definitely had feelings for Stevie, in fact, that he loved her. Stevie would end the affair after just a few months as they were worried about the consequences of their actions as she revealed, Never in a million years could you have told me that would happen. Everybody was angry because Mick was married to a wonderful girl and had two wonderful children. I was horrified. I loved these people. I loved his family. So it couldn't possibly work out. And it didn't. I just couldn't. Mick and Jenny would remain together until October 1978 when Jenny walked out on Mick after he was high on cocaine, taking the kids with her. Mick was so high on this occasion that he thought it was all a dream and remembers seeing them walk off in a blurry haze until he came to and realised they had in fact left. Mick would eventually move on with another woman named Sarah Rector who was Stevie's best friend and would later become Mick's third wife. Mick Fleetwood would sit down to inform Lindsay, man to man, that he had been seeing Stevie without his knowledge, which was hard for him to take. Lindsay was understandably upset when finding out about their affair, and found it hard to carry on in the same band as the two of them, as he explained that he would often be arranging the records as he was co-producing them, and often felt the urge not to bother to finish them, and wondering why he should even help as he felt betrayed, more so by Stevie. On occasions, it became confrontational, with outbursts and jealous rages, which occurred almost on the daily. Making matters worse was John and Christine giving each other the cold shoulder and not speaking to one another. Stevie continued on cocaine binges and became heavily reliant on the drug for daily function, after the pressure of fame and the success of the Rumours album allowed these bad habits to increase. She personally couldn't handle the life of a rock star, so cocaine helped her through the interviews, where she was often seen strung out, laughing, and moving about uncontrollably, and slurring her words on occasions. The drama within the band was like none other seen before, but despite this, it still didn't split the band up, showing how strongly they felt about what they were creating musically and artistically. The Rumours tour was a massive success, selling out shows everywhere and the money now started to flow in, making them all very comfortable, as Stevie rushed out to enjoy herself, living the good life and buying expensive items, with all band members buying houses and cars. Stevie was able to buy herself her very own house, getting as far away from shared apartment living as much as possible, and bought herself a 280SL Mercedes. Stevie was a good driver and would drive up until 1978, admitting she was too lazy to renew her license, therefore having personal drivers to do it for her anyway. She even stated that there was money everywhere, more than what they knew what to do with, which was only a negative when you're a drug addict. They started hearing their album rumours be flogged on radio, being played over and over, and they grew tired of the album, encouraging them to change up their style, instead of creating a similar sounding one. On the 10th of October, 1979, Fleetwood Mac were honoured with their very own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, just two albums into their career as a revamped classic lineup. 
From 1978 to 1979, Fleetwood Mac worked on their 12th studio album called Tusk. The album would become their most experimental yet and was very much the vision of Lindsay Buckingham's. Lindsay thought about incorporating new wave music, much like the Talking Heads, and felt the need to keep the band relevant, with the post-punk scene coming into play around the time. It would turn out to be the most expensive album to produce at the time, costing $1 million. Lindsay wanted to go against their label, Warner Brothers, as they wanted the band to produce a sequel to Rumours, but instead they decided to change it up, deciding to even purchase their own custom-built studio out of their own pockets to produce the album taking them 10 to 13 months to produce the 20-track double album. On the 19th of September 1979, the lead single Tusk was released to promote the upcoming album of the same name. The experimental track with a strong African beat would reach its highest position at number 3 in Australia, number 4 in New Zealand, 5 in Canada, 6 in Austria, 7 in the UK and Germany, and 8 in the US. The song heavily surrounded the percussion side of things, which Mick Fleetwood relished in, and featured a range of quirky vocal techniques with an African twist to them, as well as horns and trumpets as they had brought in a marching band to feature on the track. The song was written by Lindsay and sounds almost like Talking Heads meets Pink Floyd. Mick Fleetwood revealed the quirky and innovative recording process, going as far as using a tissue box and a lamb chop as instruments, as he stated, I'm playing floor toms and I overdubbed a lot of American Indian wood tribal drums. It's a whole hodgepodge of Kleenex boxes, drums, weird stuff, slapping of lamb chops and things. I got a big leg of lamb in there somewhere, I'm hitting it with a spatula. The name Tusk was actually a slang word for penis, which meant that the song was obviously referring to sex. Stevie was firmly against this being the title of their album and their lead single, but Mick convinced her otherwise. Stevie was quoted as saying, I didn't understand the title. There was nothing beautiful or elegant about the word, Tusk. It really brought to mind those people stealing ivory. Even then in 1979, you just thought, the rhinos are being poached and that tusks are being stolen, and the elephants are being slaughtered and ivory is being sold on the black market. I don't recall it being Mick's slang term for the male member. That went right over my prudish little head. I wasn't told that until quite a while after the record was done, and when I did find out, I liked the title even less. It wouldn't be the first time the band had gone too far in the pre-Buckingham Nicks era, as Mick, John and the band would fill condoms with milk, pierce them open, and squirt milk at the crowd during performances. Later in 1981, a music video was shot to feature on the opening of MTV that featured the band dancing around a marching band. John McVie was absent that day and was replaced by a cardboard cutout as he had had a falling out with Lindsay. On the 12th of October 1979, the album Tusk was released where it went to number one in the UK and New Zealand, number two in Australia, number three in Germany, France and the Netherlands, and number four in Austria and the US. Despite the success of the track Tusk, the album was heavily criticised by critics for their significant change in style, with most of the blame falling on Lindsay, who took the news pretty hard. Tusk would sell just 6.6 million copies worldwide, but was viewed as a massive step back from rumours, which Warner Brothers condemned Lindsay for his imaginative and quirky vision for the album. But despite this, Mick viewed the album as extremely important, as he said, Tusk is probably my favourite and most important Fleetwood Mac album. Tusk meant this band's survival. If we hadn't made that album, we might have broken up. Tusk did have many of its own issues though, as many arguments occurred over spaces on the album, with Stevie often being dissatisfied with having the least amount of her songs featuring on Fleetwood Mac's albums, compared to Lindsay and Christine. 
Despite this, Stevie would write and sing on five of her own songs, with her track titled Sarah being released on the 5th of December 1979. The song was originally 16 minutes long and was cut down to 6 minutes for the album and cut again to around 4 minutes as a single, which would reach number 7 in the US and 11 in Australia, and was a beautiful ballad about a range of topics, including her best friend Sarah Rector, who married her bandmate and one-time lover Mick Fleetwood after the two had an affair together and ran off to get married without Stevie knowing. The song had a dual meaning though, as she had been dating the Eagles frontman Don Henley and claimed that if they did ever have a baby together, that she would have named her Sarah. As she was quoted as saying, If I ever have a little girl, I will name her Sarah. It's a very special name to me. And on Don Henley's claim that the song was just about their potential baby together, Nick said, Had I married Don and had that baby, and she had been a girl, I would have named her Sarah. But there was another woman in my life named Sarah, who shortly after that became Mick's wife, Sarah Fleetwood. Don's claims were accurate, but not the entirety of it. Stevie delivers a line in the track that is related to both of these themes, as she sings, Sarah, you're the poet in my heart. Never change, never stop. Don Henley was quoted as saying about the song, I believe to the best of my knowledge she became pregnant by me, and she named the kid Sarah, and she had an abortion, and then wrote the song of the same name, to the spirit of the aborted baby. I was building my house at the time, and there's a line in the song that says, And when you build your house, call me. During the late 70s, around the year of 1977, Stevie Nicks and Don Henley began a romantic relationship that resulted in Stevie falling pregnant in 1979, only to abort the baby due to private and personal reasons. They had an on-off relationship for around two years before they both moved on. Stevie would date a number of other musicians over the years, including Eagles songwriter J.D. Souther, producer Jimmy Lovine, and the Eagles guitarist Joe Walsh who she shared a loving relationship with for a couple of years, only to end due to their individual struggles with drugs. She would later state that she would prefer not to have children due to her busy schedule that would simply be unfair on them if she were to have children, and that it would get in the way of her own dreams and art, as she said, My mission maybe wasn't to be a mum and a wife. Maybe my particular mission was to write songs to make mums and wives feel better. Of her niece, godchildren and extended family, she says... I have lots of kids, it's much more fun to be the crazy Arnie than it is to be the mum anyway. The following singles on the album weren't as successful including Lindsay's Not That Funny, The Veil to Chart and Christine's Think About Me that reached number 20. Fleetwood Mac founder Peter Green would return on guitar for the Christine McVie track Brown Eyes in an uncredited appearance. While the track What Makes You Think You're The One was written by Lindsay once again about Stevie and the aftermath of their breakup. Stevie's track Sisters of the Moon only made it to number 86 and wasn't written about anyone in particular this time around, with Stevie even stating she doesn't know what she was thinking about when she wrote the track. Her sad reflective song titled Storms was said to have been written about her short relationship with Mick Fleetwood and the regrettable decisions that she had made destroying people's lives along the way with their actions, as she is quoted as saying, Another tragedy. It has so many layers of telling the world what was happening to me without actually saying what was happening. It was really about Mick. That's Stevie not happy with the way that relationship ended. That relationship destroyed Mick's marriage to Jenny, who was the sweetest person in the world. So did we really think that we were going to come out of this unscathed? So then what happened to me, my best friend falling in love with him and moving into his house and neither of them telling me? It could not have been worse. Payback is a bitch. Bad karma all around. 
Here's that song in a nutshell. Don't break up other people's marriages. It will never work and will haunt you for the rest of your miserable days. Storms is arguably one of the most raw and honest tracks on Tusk and one of the band's finest works. Stevie also wrote the gentle teary ballad Beautiful Child for the album that was about a sad end to a short-lived relationship or affair with Beatles road manager Derek Taylor in 1977. She felt love towards Derek but knew it wasn't the right thing to be doing. Stevie states about the song, This is one of my very favourite ballads. It's so from the heart. It was written about an Englishman. I was crazy about him, who was quite a bit older than me. Another one of my doom relationships. He used to read poetry out loud to me in his beautiful English voice, and I would sit at his feet, just mesmerised, and he would say, You are a beautiful child, and I'd say, I'm not a child anymore. He was married, so we stopped, because it was going to hurt a lot of people. The song is like a straight retelling of the last night of that relationship. Every time I sing it, I'm transported back to the Beverly Hills Hotel and walking across the grounds to get a cab after saying goodbye. Finally, her fifth song on the album, titled Angel, was written by Stevie again, not necessarily about their relations, but about Mick Fleetwood this time just admiring the man he is and his sense of fashion and style. Much of Stevie's material from Tusk details the ramifications of having affairs and her realisation at just how damaging her actions were. Her ability to be so brave and put these thoughts and deepest secrets onto a record for the world to hear is admirable and telling of her learning from her past mistakes and growing maturity. While cocaine was clearly clouding her judgement and making her reckless, she was able to pull herself back and look at what she was doing and know that it was wrong, which most addicts couldn't do. From October 26, 1979 to September 1st, 1980, Fleetwood Mac would set out on the Tusk Tour across Europe, the US, UK, Canada, Japan, Australia and New Zealand, performing a total of 112 shows. The tour would be a highly demanding and torturous one though, that almost saw the end of Fleetwood Mac once and for all. The tour was mentally and physically draining, not to mention extremely expensive. Drinking and drug taking were also high on the agenda, with cocaine, champagne and marijuana being the biggest issues, as Christine McVie revealed. Somebody once said that with the money we spent on champagne, on one night they could have made an entire album. I used to go on stage and drink a bottle of Dom Perignon and drink one off stage afterwards. It's not the kind of party I'd like to go to now. There was a lot of booze being drunk and there was blood floating around in the alcohol, which doesn't make for a stable environment. On tour, they recorded the band's first live album while also sharing the stage with reggae legend Bob Marley in Germany. Stevie described that the Tusk tour was also extremely hard as the shows were two hours long and the band would put so much of themselves into rehearsals to get it all right, which placed a lot of pressure and fatigue on them. Towards the end of the tour, the band members couldn't stand the sight of looking or talking to one another. Not only did verbal abuse initiate, but more physical fights began to threaten the future of the band. Cocaine and alcohol was running rampant and resulting in mood swings and ugly behaviour. At the end of the tour, Fleetwood Mac decided to take a short break from one another, allowing them all to focus on themselves and even release solo projects. In October of 1981, Lindsay would release his debut solo album titled Law and Order, where it reached number 32 in the US and included Lindsay playing most instruments on the album and featuring Mick Fleetwood and Christine McVie. The album was experimental and in the vein of New Wave, much like Tusk, and would have a successful single titled Trouble that went to number one in Australia and nine in the US. 
John McPhee reunited with John Mile and the Blues Breakers on tour, travelling around Australia, Asia and the US with them before returning to Fleetwood Mac. Back in 1978, he had remarried to a woman named Julia Ann Rubens, but his heavy drinking was wearing thin on their marriage, causing many problems. Mick Fleetwood also launched his solo career with the African-inspired album titled The Visitor, where he recorded it with Richard Dasher in Ghana, featuring collaborations with Peter Green and a cover of Fleetwood Mac's 1969 track Rattlesnake Shake, which reached number 30 in the US on their rock chart. Over the years, Stevie had amassed quite a large logjam of her own material that had not made the cut onto Fleetwood Mac or Buckingham Nick's albums due to having to share the load with Christine and Lindsay. This frustrated her as she felt like she had so much more to give and that she wasn't getting any younger, so thoughts of a solo career crossed her mind. She didn't want to leave Fleetwood Mac and was still very loyal to the band, rather she just wanted an outlet for her other songs. With the help of Paul Fishkin, who she would end up dating, Stevie was convinced to go solo and Paul told her she could definitely make it on her own. She had recorded and written some of these tracks during the production of Tusk and while on tour with things looking quite grim with Fleetwood Mac, she would begin her own solo career while still remaining a member of the band after Danny Goldberg and Paul Fishkin founded Modern Records specifically for Stevie's solo career, distributing through Atlantic Records. From 1980 to 1981, Stevie's debut album was produced naming it Belladonna. She was frightened about failing and going solo, so she brought along her backing singers Sharon Solane and Laurie Perry for support, so she didn't feel alone, as it was a big change going from a band to a solo artist sitting all alone in a recording studio booth or on stage. Paul Fishkin saw her as a rock goddess, so they decided to go with this as her solo style. Her producer Jimmy Lavoine, who she would also end up dating, was harsh but fair and made her a stronger solo artist, often being blatantly honest and pushing her harder to produce a perfect record. Her Fleetwood Mac bandmates were slightly worried, if it was unsuccessful, that it would tarnish the band's image, but Stevie would soon prove them very wrong. Over the years, Stevie had sung backing vocals on Jon Stewart's top five hit, Gold, in 1979, and Walter Egan's album, Not Shy. One of these tracks, titled Magnet and Steel, would reach the top ten in the US, Canada and New Zealand, with Lindsay also producing and playing guitar on these projects. Stevie also collaborated with Kenny Loggins on their debut, Whenever I Call You Friend, that reached the top five in Canada and the US. During 1981, Stevie began performing with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on their Hard Promises tour, becoming the one and only female to play with their band after their very public No Girls Allowed policy. Tom would even give Stevie a golden sheriff's badge that read, To the only girl in the Heartbreakers. Stevie would provide backing vocals on the track, You Can Still Change Your Mind, on Petty's Hard Promises album, while singing a duet on the track, Insider. Their incredibly unique voices together made for the perfect collaboration. Stevie and Tom formed a special friendship that would last up until his death. On the 8th of July 1981, Stevie Nicks released her debut single called Stop Dragging My Heart Around, featuring Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers for her upcoming album Belladonna. Tom Petty and Mike Campbell wrote the song and it would be the only track on the album that Stevie didn't write. The song rose to number 2 on the US rock chart and number 3 on the US Hot 100. It charted inside the top 5 in South Africa and Canada and at number 10 in Australia and 11 in New Zealand. The song speaks of a relationship weighing an individual down, which appealed to Stevie Nicks. On the 27th of July 1981, Stevie released the album Belladonna to rave reviews and critical acclaim. 
Her highly successful solo debut was evident when the album peaked at number one in Australia and the US, two in Canada, seven in New Zealand and 11 in the UK, selling around 5 million copies worldwide and going four times platinum in the US. The famous debut album cover shows Stevie in a white dress holding a white Australian cockatoo while a set of three roses rests against her famous tambourine. The name Belladonna is Italian for beautiful woman but also represents a poisonous herb. Stevie's passion for witchy, mysterious and spiritual expression comes into play on this album as the herb in question is often used in brews and potions, synonymous with witchcraft, but can also be used as a form of painkiller in small doses. Stevie uses this notion as a metaphor for the music industry and lifestyle of a musician being potentially deadly, but also good in small doses. The song title Belladonna speaks of these same themes, but also highlights a spirit by the name of Belladonna, providing her with strength and guidance. Another track on the album titled Kind of Woman also delves into spiritual themes, such as a woman coming back to haunt someone. Following the success of Belladonna as an album and Stop Dragging My Heart Around, Stevie would perform another duet this time with former lover and Eagles frontman Don Henley with the beautiful track Lever and Lace, releasing it on the 6th of October 1981. The song was a big success in North America, going to number 6 in the US and number 12 in Canada. Stevie remained close with Don after the two separated and originally wrote the song for musician and friend Waylon Jennings for him and his wife to sing as a duet together. After putting a lot of work into the track with Don by her side, she decided in the end that Don and herself should sing it together as Waylon and his wife had since split up. Henley would also provide backing vocals on the track Highwayman for the album. During February of 1982, Stevie released arguably her heaviest rock tune to date with the song Edge of Seventeen. Once again it would become a big hit in Canada and the US, reaching number 11 on both mainstream charts. Featuring a hard-hitting guitar riff and bass line, Stevie was viewed as the baddest and sexiest female rock star on the scene for her exhilarating performances, often dressed in wing-white dresses and with her flowing blonde hair. The song once again had a number of meanings close to her heart relating to the death of her uncle Jonathan, also known as Bill, and the tragic death of music legend John Lennon. As Stevie stated about the song, I was in Australia when John Lennon was shot. Everybody was devastated. I didn't know John Lennon, but I knew Jimmy Levine, who worked with John quite a bit in the 70s, and heard all the loving stories that Jimmy told about him. When I came back to Phoenix, I started to write this song. Right when I got to Phoenix, my Uncle Bill got cancer. He got very sick very fast and died in a couple of weeks. My cousin John Nix and I were in the room when he died. There was just John and I there. That was part of the song when I went running down the hallways looking for somebody. I thought, where's my mum? Where's his wife and the rest of the family? At that point, I went back to the piano and finished the song. Stevie continues as she says, It became a song about violent death which was very scary to me, because at the point no one in the family had died. To me the white-winged dove was for John Lennon, the dove of peace, and for my uncle, it was the white-winged dove who lies in the Seguro cactus. That's how I found out about the white-winged dove. And it does make that cooing sound. I read that somewhere in Phoenix and thought that I would use it in this song. The dove became exciting and sad and tragic and incredibly dramatic. Every time I sing this song, I have the ability to go back to that two-month period where it all came down. I've never changed it and I can't imagine ending my show with any other song. It's such a strong, private moment that I share in this song. 
When Stevie would perform this as her final song of the evening at live shows, fans would litter the stage with flowers and gifts for Stevie, which became a regular occurrence. Nix released her final single from the album, titled After the Glitter Fades, shortly after, where it went on to reach number 32 on the US Hot 100. The song was originally written back in the early 70s, around the time of Landslide and Rhiannon, and was written in mind for Dolly Parton, which is why it had a country style to it. From late November 1981 to early December 1981, Stevie performed 10 shows from Texas to LA, in the US performing her music from Belladonna and her own material from Fleetwood Mac. Overall, the album was the perfect solo debut for Stevie, but it was now time for her to return to Fleetwood Mac. When Stevie reunited with Fleetwood Mac, they decided they needed a change of scenery, so they took off to France to record their 13th studio album and fourth together as the classic lineup. They returned to a more pop-centric, soft-rock style, steering away from their previous experimental Tusk album. Over the months of June and July 1982, the lead single Hold Me was released to the world, peaking at number 4 in the US, 9 in Canada, and 12 in Australia. Christine McVie wrote the song about her brief relationship with Beach Boys member Dennis Wilson. The two broke up in 1981, and just two years later, Dennis tragically passed away after drowning while intoxicated. The passing of Dennis was shattering news for Christine, leaving her a mess. But the bad news didn't stop there, with Mick Fleetwood going bankrupt, as cocaine started to dictate his life, drying up all his money, while Stevie's good friend Robin was struggling with her fight against leukaemia, placing a lot of worry on Stevie's shoulders. On the 18th of June, 1982, Mirage was released as Fleetwood Mac's 13th studio album and would peak at number 1 in the US, number 2 in Australia and Norway, and 5 in Canada and the UK, selling just over 5 million copies worldwide to this day, which was solid but was a further decline commercially compared with the Tusk album. It was also critically met with mixed reviews with the tracks Gypsy and Hold Me saving the album from failure. Other singles on the album struggled, including Christine McVie's Love in Store, only reaching number 22 in the US, and 9 in the UK. The song was once again written about her relationship with Dennis Wilson, while the track Can't Go Back failed to chart, despite being an underrated tune. Other songs Stevie wrote for the album include That's Alright, that was formerly a Buckingham Nicks track, and the song Straight Back, that became somewhat of a radio hit in the US. Stevie wrote straight back about her brief relationship ending with producer Jimmy Levine and leaving Fleetwood Mac to start a successful solo career only to go straight back relatively quickly to the band. This is evident when Stevie sings, What can I say this time? Which card shall I play? The dream is not over. The dream is just away. And you will fly like some little wing straight back to the sun. The dream was never over. The dream has just begun. Stevie would once again produce arguably the band's best and most memorable track from the Mirage album with the track Gypsy. Despite not eclipsing Christine McVie's Hold Me on the charts, it peaked inside the top 10 in the US and Canada on their adult contemporary chart and reached number 12 in the US on the Billboard Hot 100 and 17 in Australia. The track was a simply beautiful, moving and relaxing track that became a huge hit on MTV with its music video and was popular on radio. Stevie originally wrote Gypsy about her road to Fleetwood Mac and stardom as a musician, from poor struggling waitress, cleaner and wannabe musician, to losing her relationship with Lindsay, the one who had been there with her through all the tough times. It also represents being free and fearless and symbolising what she once was, which the Gypsy represents in the lyrics. To the Gypsy that remains, her face says freedom with a little fear. I have no fear, I have only love. 
Stevie speaks of these difficult times, the end of her relationship with Lindsay, and the meaning behind her lyrics as she is quoted as saying, In the old days before Fleetwood Mac, Lindsay and I had no money, so we had a king-size mattress, but we just had it on the floor. I had old vintage coverlets on it, and even though we had no money, it was still really pretty. Just that, and a lamp on the floor, and that was it. There was a certain calmness about it. To this day, when I'm feeling cluttered, I will take my mattress off of my beautiful bed, wherever that may be, and put it outside my bedroom, with a table and a little lamp. This is clear in the line, so I'm back to the velvet underground, back to the floor that I love, to a room with some lace and paper flowers, back to the gypsy that I was. The Velvet Underground was a clothing store located in San Francisco that was nearby to her apartment that her inspirations Grace Slick and Janis Joplin shopped at, while it is said that she had paper flowers by her bedside along with lace as a decoration. The song was originally intended to be included on her solo album Belladonna, but didn't make the cut. The song would find a new meaning when Stevie's best friend Robin was dying of leukemia, and she decided to dedicate it to her. Stevie and Robin had been friends since around the age of 15, after attending school together in LA. Robin would remain close to Stevie throughout her musical career, often accompanying her on tour as she worked as a speech therapist for Stevie to improve her pronunciations when singing. Robin was her best friend and the two shared a special bond. On the night before the release of Stevie's solo album, Belladonna in 1981, Robin was diagnosed with leukemia and was told she only had three months to live. She soon entered remission and managed to fall pregnant just two months into remission, only for the cancer to aggressively return. She decided to go off all treatment and knew that she was going to die anyway and decided to continue with the pregnancy rather than extend her life by a couple of months. She wanted the baby to be born to have a reminder of her, leaving her partner Kim Anderson as a single parent. Kim and Robin soon welcomed their newborn baby boy into the world three months premature and named him Matthew. Unfortunately, Robin passed away just two to three days after his birth, during October of 1982, which devastated Stevie and Robin's partner Kim. The loss of Robin was traumatic for Stevie, and she felt it was only right to stick by Matthew and Kim's side, as it would be what Robin wanted. Kim and Stevie quickly bonded over the loss of Robin, and the two started to share feelings for one another. With their grief being confused for love, Stevie decided that Robin would want them to get married, so after three months together, they did. Stevie had previously opposed marriage and having children, but decided Matthew and Kim needed her. After the two got married, Stevie began having second thoughts and started to feel guilty, as she had taken Robin's man and son. Stevie became a mother figure to Matthew and loved him dearly. But on one particular night, Stevie recalls walking into Matthew's bedroom to find his crib rocking. Being a believer in spirits and life after death, Stevie believed Robin was there for her son. These strange occurrences would happen regularly, but one day she sensed that the house was still, while feeling like Robin passed on a message that she wanted Stevie to leave. All of a sudden it hit Stevie, and she realised what she had for Kim was not love, rather the coming together over a shared tragedy, and that what they had done was not right. After just six months with Kim, she went upstairs to their bedroom, and waited for Kim to arrive home. When Kim walked into the room, they sat down together, and Stevie told him, I don't love you. You don't love me. You might think you love me, but you don't. Before telling him, she thinks they should get a divorce. Stevie stated that she didn't know what she was thinking and was most definitely in a confused state as Stevie explained the ordeal in an interview in 1990 
before Matthew had walked back into her life where she stated, Robin was one of the few women who ever got leukaemia and then got pregnant and they had to take the baby at six and a half months and then she died just two days later. And when she died, I went crazy. I just went insane and so did her husband and we were the only two that could really understand the depth of the grief that we were going through and I was determined to take care of that baby. So I said to Kim, I don't know, I guess we should just get married. And so we got married three months after she died, and it was a terrible, terrible mistake. We didn't get married because we were in love. We got married because we were grieving, and it was the only way that we could feel like we were doing anything. I haven't seen Kim, nor have I seen Matthew, since that day. I suppose that Matthew will find me when he's ready. I mean, I am really next to Robin, his mummy. But Kim and I can't deal with each other at all. So when the baby's old enough, I have all of his mother's things. And I have her life on film for 14, 15 years. I have us on tape singing. I have a beautiful book that I wrote the year that she died. I have a room full of stuff for him. I have his mother to give back to him when he's ready. After breaking it off with Kim, becoming her one and only marriage in a lifetime, Stevie would not see the two of them or keep in contact for a number of years until Matthew got older and Stevie now keeps in regular contact with Matthew, even funding his college degree later in life. From this point on, Stevie found performing Gypsy to be a highly emotional experience. The beautiful music video for the song would become the most expensive to be produced at the time, and heavily features Stevie in a number of scenes, changing costume many times along the way. Stevie is seen in the lace-decorated apartment before walking down the street in old-fashioned clothing, it even features Lindsay and Stevie dancing together intimately and John and Christine sitting together as the theme of the song suggests about returning to the past and lost moments and memories of days gone by. While the iconic shot of Stevie singing in the pouring rain in a black dress and black netted veil like a widow is the moment that makes the video so memorable. She is then seen dancing through the forest in a white dress bringing her mystical side to life on video. Fleetwood Mac had concluded the Mirage Tour in October of 1982 after just 32 shows. Stevie had only recently lost Robin at this point and put in some of her best emotive performances to date. That was until Stevie came down with walking or atypical pneumonia. After losing Robin and the confusing short-lived marriage to Kim Anderson, Stevie decided to once again focus on her solo career and step away from Fleetwood Mac. The rest of the band agreed and the five members would go on a five-year break working on their own solo projects and themselves. John would focus on his passion of sailing while Mick, Christine, Stevie and Lindsay all released solo albums. During the break from Fleetwood Mac, the highly underrated Christine McVie released her own self-titled solo album during 1984 where it peaked at number 26 in the US and had a top 10 hit in the US with the single Got A Hold On Me. That even went to number one on a range of US and Canadian rock and adult contemporary charts, while her other single, Love Will Show Us How, reached number 30 in the US. She would also get married to keyboard player Eddie Quintella during 1986. In 1983, Mick Fleetwood would release an album titled I'm Not Me, billed under the name Mick Fleetwood's Zoo, having a slight hit with the song I Want You Back, and featured Buckingham and Christine McVie, along with future Fleetwood Mac member Billy Burnett. Lindsay Buckingham was enjoying his own solo success with his hit Holiday Road, featuring on the popular US film National Lampoon's Vacation, as well as the song Dancing Across the USA. During 1984, he separated from Carol Ann Harris after seven years together before releasing another solo album titled Go Insane, with the track of the same name reaching number 23 on the US chart. 
He would next join in on the USA for Africa track, We Are The World, and writing music for other artists, including Belinda Carousel, and the soundtrack for Back To The Future. Meanwhile, John McVie was out at sea, living the dream with his passion for sailing, even going as far as getting lost at sea on a Pacific voyage. While all of this was occurring, Stevie Nicks would see herself enjoy huge success as a solo artist. During June of 1983, Stevie released her second studio album, titled Wild Hearts, receiving mostly positive reviews and being a well-rounded pop rock album. It peaked at number 5 in the US, 7 in Canada, and 8 in Australia, selling over 2.5 million copies worldwide. Stevie recorded the album over a couple of months, teaming with songwriter Sandy Stewart for a number of songs, with the album also featuring Tom Petty on the track he wrote titled, I Will Run To You. The lead single, Stand Back, was a brilliant funky track that was performed in the style of Prince. Stevie wrote the song back when she was still with Kim, the night they got married, while they were driving to the location of their honeymoon, when Little Red Corvette came on, inspiring Stevie to write the song after loving the sound of the synthesizers and the melody. As she hummed along to Little Red Corvette, she came up with her own song that was like nothing she had thought up before. They stopped in town to get a tape recorder before recording it that night while on their honeymoon. As Stevie was already friends with Prince, she called him up when she went to record the song in the studio and told him about how his song inspired her. Prince decided to come down to the studio and played the synthesizer and synth bass on the track for her in an uncredited role as long as he gets 50% of the royalties from the track. As mystical as Prince was, Stevie explained that he just all of a sudden disappeared like it was all a dream. Stand Back would become a popular hit, reaching number 2 on the US rock chart and number 5 on their mainstream chart, while also reaching 10 in Canada and 20 in Australia. It became one of her most favourite songs of her career, and one that she continued to play solo and with Fleetwood Mac later on. Her following synth-heavy single, If Anyone Falls, would peak at number 8 on the US rock chart, while reaching number 14 on the Hot 100 also. The song was written about her good friend and guitarist, Waddy Wachell while her personal favourite from the album and third single release was titled Nightbird that only reached the top 30 in the US. The song was a continuation of The Edge of Seventeen, depicting the difficulties female rock stars face in the heavily male-biased industry, while also exploring spirituality, her friend Robin's death, and death in general. Arguably the most underrated tracks on the album is the opener Wild Hearts and the beautiful closing track Beauty and the Beast which was a ballad displaying Stevie's brilliant vocals. She was inspired to write the song as the 1946 French version of Beauty and the Beast was one of her favourite films growing up but also speaks about her own life over the years and trying to determine what people are the beauty and the beast. In other words, who is trustworthy and who is not. When recording the track at Gordy Perry Studios, she was accompanied by a full-string orchestra, and just to make them feel welcome and appreciated, Stevie and her crew served them with champagne, putting her old waitressing skills to good use. Other tracks on the album, such as Gate and Garden, explore Stevie's personal place to escape from the world and enter her own thoughts, while the track Enchanted is also a great underrated track that Stevie whipped up quickly one day while travelling in a limousine. A bonus track titled Garbo speaks of the infamous photo shoot with Buckingham Nicks where she was forced to pose nude. While finally, the underrated track Sable on Blonde was written by Stevie as she is quoted as saying, I wrote this when I came off the Belladonna tour, one of the most exhilarating and beautiful experiences I've ever had. 
and I moved into my new dream house. But it was more of a nightmare because it was cold and empty. I only had my piano, there was no phones, and I was alone, freezing, with nothing. It was like going from heaven straight to hell, without stopping off for a burger on the way. I was devastated. I moved into my closet with my quilt and my pillows and my writing stuff. My clothes were hanging in my face and I took my little stereo in there. And that's where I lived. But the song really is about learning to live with Stevie. Learn to be a stranger. Learn to live in silence. Learn not to call on everybody else to get you out of everything or make everybody else pay for what you're going through because you've chosen this life. Following the success of the Wild Heart album, Stevie headed back into the studio after touring from June to November 1983. Stevie recorded songs for a new album during 1984 and was originally going to name it Mirror Mirror but was unhappy with what she had to release after splitting up with producer and partner Jimmy Levine who didn't like the direction she was taking opening the door for Keith Olsen to return to co-produce the album. Deciding instead to produce a new set of songs and renaming the album Rock A Little many claimed that the album was increasingly nasally and huskier due to Stevie's excessive cocaine addiction. She received three major offers for tracks to be included on the album, but turned them down. These included Heart's number one hit, These Dreams, Don't Come Around Here No More by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and Purple Rain by Prince, knocking them back after feeling she couldn't do the songs justice. While a duet title, Reconsider Me, with former lover and Eagles frontman Don Henley, was left off the album. On the 18th of November, 1985, Stevie released her third studio album titled Rock A Little to mixed reviews. Despite reaching number 5 in Australia and being quite popular there, it struggled elsewhere, only reaching number 12 in the US and 11 in Canada, selling just over 1 million copies worldwide. Despite this, it included a number of solid tracks, with the first being a song she didn't write, titled Talk To Me, that reached number 4 on the mainstream in the US and number 1 on their rock chart. This was followed by the track, I Can't Wait, that reached number 16 in the US and 20 in Australia, as her hold on the charts started to slip. In the music video for the track, Stevie looks back at the time as embarrassing and frustrating, as she had been heavily under the influence of drugs on every music video set just to get through it, as she says, I look at that video, I look at my eyes, and I say to myself, could you have just laid off the pot, the coke, and the tequila for three days so you could have looked a little better? Next was the song, Has Anyone Ever Written Anything For You, that peaked at number 60 in the US. It was originally written about her former lover, Joe Walsh of the Eagles, and related to the passing of his daughter, Emma, who he himself had wrote a song for, called Song For Emma. Stevie was inspired to write the song after taking a drive with Joe many years ago, as she says... I guess in a very few rare cases, some people find someone that they fall in love with the very first time they see them, from across the room, from a million miles away. Some people call it love at first sight, and of course, I never believed in that, until the night I walked into a party after a gig at the hotel, and from across the room, without my glasses, I saw this man, and I walked straight to him. He held out his hands to me, and I walked straight into them. I remember thinking, I can never be far from this person again. He is my soul. He seemed to be in a lot of pain, though he hit it well. But finally, a few days later, he rented a jeep and drove me up into the snow-covered hills of Colorado for about two hours. He wouldn't tell me where we were going, but he did tell me a story of a little daughter that he had lost. To Joe, she was much more than a child. She was three and a half, and she could relate to him. 
I guess I had been complaining about a lot of things going on on the road, and he decided to make me aware of how unimportant my problems were if they were compared to worse sorrows. So he told me that he had taken his little girl to this magic park whenever he could, and the only thing she ever complained about was that she was too little to reach up to the drinking fountain. As we drove up to this beautiful park, he came around to open my door and help me down, and when I looked up, I saw the park, his baby's park, and I burst into tears saying, you built a drinking fountain here for her, didn't you? I was right. Under a huge beautiful hanging tree was a tiny silver drinking fountain. I left Joe to get to it, and on it, it said, dedicated to her and all of the others who were too small to get a drink. So he wrote a song for her, and I wrote a song for him. This is your song, I said to the people, but it was Joe's song. Thank you, Joe, for the most committed song I ever wrote. But more than that, thank you for inspiring me in so many ways. Nothing in my life ever seems as dark anymore since we took that drive. Finally, the track Imperial Hotel was released, but failed to chart successfully and was written for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers keyboard player, Ben Montench, and features him as well as Mike Campbell. Other great tracks from the album included the interesting and well-written track called Nightmare that was written by both Stevie and her brother Chris Nix, who also made an appearance on a music video for Talk To Me. While the song No Spoken Word was also a fan favourite, often being performed on her set lists at her live shows. Stevie Nicks embarked on her third solo tour, performing 57 shows and travelling to the US, Canada and Australia, her three biggest fan bases over the course of six months, ending the tour in October in Australia. She performed with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Bob Dylan while in the country and travelled with Peter Frampton as her support act. The tour was marred, however, by Stevie's cocaine addiction, often getting in the way of her music, and it began to affect her performances. Earlier that year, in January 1986, she saw a plastic surgeon that advised her that continued use of cocaine would have severe consequences, and Stevie asked him, what do you think about my nose? And he said, well, I think the next time you do a hit of cocaine, you could drop dead. He also informed her that she has a really big hole in her septum, inside her nose leading to a brain that had been created from excessive cocaine abuse. He told her your next hit of cocaine could kill her and she is at risk of brain hemorrhage. That's how far it had eroded. She would eventually undergo plastic surgery to fix the issue. Since 1976, exactly 10 years ago, Stevie first tried cocaine and had been using heavily ever since, increasing her intake over time. In 1977, she says that the addiction became worse due to the easy availability of the drug. She believes when she started buying for herself is when the addiction worsened. She was often nervous and hated public appearances, so she decided to dim these feelings with drugs and alcohol. She says she would think about it all day and all night, and it was the first thing she would think about when she woke up, and the last thing she would think about when she went to bed. Her addiction even became so bad that she carried a gram of cocaine in her car boot at all times, while even describing it as common as having a glass of orange juice. It was a daily occurrence where she would drink brandy, smoke pot and do some coke. After hearing the news from the plastic surgeon, Stevie was quite shocked and worried and after finishing up her tour in Sydney, Australia, she travelled back to the US performing what would be her final show while on cocaine at Red Rocks and decided she would arrange to check herself in at Betty Ford Rehab Clinic in California, spending a total of 30 days here to fight her cocaine addiction. 
Originally she was carefree and didn't mind to go down the same way as Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, but then realised it wasn't a way she wanted her legacy to be remembered. To those that look up to her, as she revealed, I saw how they went down and a part of me wanted to go down with them, but then another part of me thought, I would be very sad if some 25 year old lady rock and roll singer 10 years from now said, I wish Stevie Nicks would have thought about it a little more. That's kind of what stopped me and made me really look at the world through clear eyes. As Stevie left rehab, she would never touch cocaine again and she was referred by her friends to see a doctor who was actually just a psychiatrist who placed Stevie on clonazepam or more commonly known as clonopin to help her refrain from taking cocaine again and to deal with her stress levels that caused her to take the cocaine in the first place. Clonopin is usually given to people to prevent seizures, movement disorders and panic attacks and is known as a form of tranquilizer that can have severe adverse effects such as sleepiness and a lack of coordination. Stevie was falsely prescribed the drug, requesting it for stress, and it would soon become yet another addiction. Clonopin is an extremely addictive prescription medication that Stevie says she became so addicted that she was taking it daily like it was your daily dose of vitamin C and would take it for a total of eight years despite it only being meant to be taken for nine weeks at a time. At first she thought the clonopin was helping until she started to feel extremely fatigued and would quickly regret meeting the doctor that prescribed it to her that she would often label as Dr. Fuckhead. After getting her silicon breast implants removed, she began feeling even worse as she stated, They made me very, very sick. I had them done in December 1976. I'd only been in Fleetwood Mac one year and I was getting a lot of attention. I had always thought my hips were too big and that I had no chest. This soon resulted in low self-esteem, worsening depression and weight gain, but before it all came to her head, she would continue on with her career, despite being quite ill. During 1988, Fleetwood Mac released a compilation album of their greatest hits, reminding listeners of how great they were and selling over 10 million copies worldwide and charting at number one in New Zealand and reaching the top five in Australia, the UK and the Netherlands. It included a new track from Stevie titled No Questions Asked. Fleetwood Mac would reunite once again after a five-year hiatus after Lindsay was determined not to see Mirage be represented as their final album. Originally, he started working on a solo album until Mick, Christine and John became interested in reuniting, with Stevie eventually agreeing also. Former millionaire Mick Fleetwood had gone bankrupt through his cocaine troubles while John McVie was struggling with alcoholism, even suffering from seizures. While Christine and Lindsay had been suffering with loss and mental health battles, it had been a rollercoaster ride for the classic five members of the band, but they would produce their best album since Rumours, cementing them as one of the greatest bands of all time. The album took a total of 18 months to complete after Lindsay had started the project solo before the others joined with Stevie only being with the band for a total of two weeks in the studio due to all of her battles going on and she was touring with Rock A Little. She sent a range of demos to the band during this time as she couldn't be there in person, allowing the band to work on them. She describes the weeks that she did go in as difficult and feeling unmotivated, as she was quoted as saying, I can remember going up there and not being happy to even be there. I didn't go very often. But when she was available, she would swig a number of brandies and perform her vocals while hindered by the alcohol, sounding rather drunk, and Lindsay was forced to remove them, which is why she has limited songs on the album, and with McVie and Buckingham. Buckingham described the time as he revealed, That was in my estimation when everybody in the band was personally at their worst. By that time we did tango in the night, everybody was leading their lives in a way that they would not be too proud of today. 
On the 13th of April 1987, Fleetwood Mac released their 14th studio album, titled Tango in the Night. It was received well by critics, claiming it was a great comeback by the band and receiving rave reviews. Accompanied by great music videos, the album peaked at number one in the UK and Sweden, number two in Germany and the Netherlands, five in Australia, six in Canada and seven in the US and Switzerland. The album would go on to sell around 11.3 million copies worldwide to this day and going eight times platinum in the UK. They released a number of popular singles, including Lindsay's track, Big Love, that reached number five in the US and reaching the top ten in a further four countries, including the UK. Many listeners believe Stevie must have been on backing vocals, but it was actually Lindsay mimicking a female voice to create the effect. The brilliant ballads Little Lies and Everywhere were written and vocalised by Christine McVie, with Little Lies reaching number one in Poland and on the US adult chart, four in the US mainstream, and reaching the top ten in a further seven countries, including the UK, New Zealand and 16 in Australia. McVie writing Little Lies about her relationships with Dennis Wilson and John McVie, and stating, The idea of the lyric is, If I had the chance, I'd do it differently next time. But since I can't, just carry on lying to me, and I'll believe even though I know you're lying. While the brilliant trotting beat of Everywhere helped it peak at number one in Canada and the US on their adult chart while reaching the top ten in a further four countries, including the UK and 14 on the US Hot 100. Christine wrote the song about her marriage and loving relationship with songwriter Eddie Quintella. Other singles, including Family Man and Isn't It Midnight, had minor charting successes worldwide. Stevie's most successful track on the album, however, would be called Seven Wonders and would peak at number two on the US mainstream rock chart and only managed to reach number 19 in the US. It was a great rock track that was predominantly written by Stevie's songwriting partner, Sandy Stewart, with Stevie contributing to just one line in the song, reading, All the Way Down to Emmeline. While it was a great song, it was clear that Stevie's involvement in Tango in the Night was quite limited, performing backing vocals on Little Lies, but only having two more of her songs on the album titled Welcome to the Room, Sarah, and When I See You Again. The song Welcome to the Room, Sarah, was written by Stevie about her stay at rehab at Betty Ford, and the name Sarah, referring to the fake name Stevie used to check herself in with, called Sarah Anderson. While the track When I See You Again hardly featured Stevie on vocals, after Lindsay revealed, I had to pull performances out of words and lines and make parts that sounded like her that weren't her. Due to all this, Lindsay would call a meeting at Christine McVie's place just 10 days before they went on tour for the album, deciding he would be quitting the band and would not be touring with them. The meeting had quickly turned sour, with an ugly physical altercation breaking out between Stevie and Lindsay over him leaving the band before walking out. Lindsay was frustrated with his fractured bandmates deciding he would be better off as a solo artist. He said about the situation, I needed to get some separation from Stevie, especially because I don't think I'd ever quite gotten closure on our relationship. I needed to get on with the next phase of my creative growth and my emotional growth. When you break up with someone and then for the next 10 years you have to be around them and do for them and watch them move away from you, it's not easy. The band was deeply saddened when Lindsay left, with Mick Fleetwood saying in an interview, somewhat sadly, the kudos of that was never really fully attributed to Lindsay because he wasn't present. He was coerced and persuaded to do that album, mainly by me, and to his credit, he put aside everything that he'd dreamt of doing, including making his own album for Fleetwood Mac, but then realised that he'd made a mistake. Lindsay was not being heard, we just didn't get it. 
Lindsay would be replaced on the Shake the Cage tour in September 1987 by friends of the band Rick Vito and Billy Burnett, who had both worked on many projects with Fleetwood Mac members, making it a comfortable fit. Stevie simply had too much going on at the time, and Mick and her bandmates recall her being sleepy all the time, almost collapsing and always lacking energy. When Stevie toured with Fleetwood Mac for the Shake the Cage tour, it was cut short due to Stevie becoming severely ill and fatigued as she was basically sleeping non-stop. In 1988, Stevie was diagnosed with a severe fatigue disorder called Epstein-Barr virus, brought on by the constant touring and highly stressful on-the-go lifestyle she had been living. Despite this, she would soon return to solo work after returning to her home in Phoenix to rest up from the virus, spending the next year or so here and writing songs for her next solo album. In early 1989, Stevie was ready and refreshed to return despite being still under the influence of Clonopin. She produced another solid album, renting out an old but beautiful medieval Dutch-style castle in LA and transforming the dining room into her own recording studio, costing her $25,000 a month to rent. During May of 1989, Stevie released her fourth studio album, titled The Other Side of the Mirror. The album peaked at number 3 in the UK, 8 in Sweden and Australia, 10 in the US and 11 in Canada. The album would only sell just over 1 million copies worldwide and wouldn't have any major hits, receiving mixed to negative reviews. The track Rooms on Fire would become a minor hit peaking at number 1 on the US rock chart and number 9 in Canada, but would finish only in the top 20 in the UK, New Zealand and the US mainstream. It was a great track however, and Stevie revealed in an interview that Rooms on Fire is about a girl who goes through a life like I have gone through, where she finally accepts the idea that there never will be those other things in life. She will never be married, she will never have children, she will never do those parts of life. She also said about the song that it was about the mystical bond and relationship she shared with her producer Rupert Hine at the time, and how he had a spiritual energy around him, only for the relationship to turn sour in the end. Stevie would tour the UK and Europe to promote the album, but would admit to not remembering a thing about that period of time due to the clonopin affecting her that badly. This was the period of time that the clonopin started to dangerously kick in, making her condition worse and making her depressed, more distant and disconnected from the world. While this was all happening, Fleetwood Mac were planning for their 15th studio album, featuring new members Billy Burnett and Rick Vito in Lindsay Buckingham's place. The album was called Behind the Mask and was released in April of 1990. It would become Stevie's final album with the band for a number of years and peaked at number one in the UK and reached the top 10 in seven countries, including Australia and New Zealand, and only number 18 in the US, selling just 2.7 million copies worldwide and was met with mixed to negative reviews with critics. Things just weren't the same without Lindsay and the band and fans also felt the same. The Christine McVie track Save Me and Sky's the Limit would be the only minor hits from the album and failed to live up to the success of Tango in the Night. Stevie would write and co-write just four tracks on the album, but her addiction to clonopin most definitely affected her songwriting ability and input. Stevie toured with Fleetwood Mac performing 101 shows across nine countries including the US, Canada, Europe and Australia, selling out shows all over the world and performing at London's Wembley Arena but Stevie decided that she would part ways with the band at the end of the tour to focus on her own solo career after having a dispute with Mick Fleetwood over her 1977 song, Silver Springs, after she wanted to include it on her upcoming Best Of album titled Time Space, but Mick refused as he wanted it to feature on an upcoming Fleetwood Mac box set causing a rift. 
Stevie knew it would be a highlight of her Time Space album, as it had grown to become popular amongst the fans, and Fleetwood Mac had previously not cared too much for the track, especially since it was treated as a lowly B-side, making Stevie increasingly frustrated and upset over his control over one of her songs. Stevie was done with the band, and they wouldn't speak for years. Christine McVie also left to take time off after the passing of her father and would retire from touring. While Rick Vito would also quit after just two tours and one album with Fleetwood Mac as he attempted to further his solo career. Lindsay appeared on one occasion performing a few numbers including Landslide with Stevie. It was around this time that Stevie began wearing shoulder pads, fingerless black gloves, wearing berets and other stylish hats, displaying her frizzy trendy big hair style and a moon necklace and of course her black dresses as she looked to adapt to the 90s style change. Stevie would wear high platform shoes as she was quite small and this way she would feel taller. She would often dress her mic stand in streamers, beads and even roses for decoration and to add to her mystical theme. As the 90s got underway, Stevie continued to suffer at the hands of the drug clonopin. Stevie was often lethargic and described herself as a non-entity most of the time, as if she wasn't there or aware what she was even doing, which had an impact on her creativity and ability to think clearly. In 1991, Stevie released a compilation album titled Time Space, the best of Stevie Nicks. Despite the album reaching number one in New Zealand, it was well outside the top ten worldwide and sold just over one million copies worldwide. It came as quite a shock when it included all of her solo hits over the years, including The Edge of Seventeen, Lever and Lace, Talk to Me and Stand Back, but most tracks were remixed which made the album less appealing. It featured a previously unreleased single called Sometimes It's a Bitch that was written partly by John Bon Jovi and managed slight success in the US, reaching number 7 on their US rock chart, but was hardly successful elsewhere. Other previously unreleased tracks included Desert Angel that Stevie wrote about the soldiers fighting in the Gulf War, while the track Love's a Hard Game to Play was co-written with Poison's Brett Michaels, but these weren't released as singles. In this time, John McVie would become a father to his wife Julianne, having a daughter together, and he had stopped drinking altogether, refusing to touch another drop to this day, while he would release his first ever solo album called John McVie's Got a Band with Lola Thomas, but wasn't a commercial success. Christine McVie was enjoying life away from the industry, as she hated touring, and she continued to write songs for Fleetwood Mac. Mick Fleetwood released his third studio album calling it Shaken the Cage under the name The Zoo but failed to chart successfully. Lindsay also released his fourth studio album titled Out of the Cradle that also struggled to chart. With the five classic members struggling, Fleetwood Mac would reunite in unlikely circumstances in 1992 when Bill Clinton utilised Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop for his presidential campaign theme song and ordered the band to reunite for his cause. In 1993, at Bill Clinton's inaugural gala celebration, after being sworn in as the 42nd US president, the five members of Fleetwood Mac performed live together like they had never parted ways. There was obvious tension between Stevie and Lindsay, but they were a highlight of the gala. Despite fans raving about the performance of Don't Stop, the media targeted Stevie for her weight gain, denting her confidence once again. Despite the hype around the band reuniting, it failed to inspire the band members to stay together, They did however speak more regular with one another over the phone and featured on each other's solo projects. Later that year in 1993, Stevie had a bad fall after holding a celebratory baby shower at her house where she tripped over a box and hit her head on a fireplace, passing out and cutting her head open. 
Stevie would soon realise it was directly caused by the effects of clonopin that made her trip, as she stated, I'm one of those people who doesn't injure themselves. I was horrified to see that blood. I hadn't had enough wine. I knew it was the clonopin. Stevie had begun to lose her grip on the charts also, and this would be further evident when Stevie released her fifth studio album, titled Street Angel, during May of 1994. It would become her lowest selling album of her career, with just over 500,000 copies being sold, and reaching its peak position in the UK at number 16. Both her singles, Maybe Love Will Change Your Mind and Blue Denim, would fail to crack the top 50 in the US, and would become her last album under modern records with Paul Fishkin. Nix was furious with the work done by producer Glyn Johns, with his careless attitude that she blames for the outcome of the album and its success. The album was also hindered by Stevie returning to rehab for a second time, this time for her addiction to clonopin. Stevie was desperate to get off clonopin, and with her strong will and determination, she checked herself into Exodus Rehabilitation Clinic in LA and says it was harder to beat than cocaine, being a horrible and painful experience, taking her 17 days longer to dry off. Due to being in rehab, the label rushed to finish it on her behalf, without her consent, so that it would be ready for her to promote as soon as she got out. Stevie would be in rehab for around 47 days and believes Clonopin ruined her life, took 8 years of her life away and almost ruined her reputation and career. After finally getting clear of Clonopin, Stevie attempted to fix what the label had messed with on her latest album, Street Angel, but it was already too late and it was released without her full blessing. Stevie then returned to her home in Paradise Valley in Phoenix, Arizona to recover from her ordeal with drugs and rehab and get back to the simpler things as her life had become so hectic. Stevie purchased her home in 1981 and resided here with her brother Christopher Nix, his wife and Stevie's best friend, Laurie Perry Nix, and their daughter Jessica. For the first time in around 20 years, Stevie was drug-free. She rode horses again, sketched and drew pictures, and began to amass a large amount of songs she had written over the four-month period. But she had also put on around 10 pounds that gave her self-esteem issues and had her second-guessing her own talent. Stevie would tour during 1994 to promote Street Angel. She would receive praise for her strong vocals after overcoming her addiction to clonopin, but was unfairly criticised for her weight gain by the media that seemed more focused on judging her appearance than her performances. On one particular night after a show at the House of Blues in September, Stevie walked off stage and vowed never to return until she could get her weight back to normal, as she believed she had lost the real Stevie Nicks and was battling severe self-esteem issues. Once again, Stevie returned to Phoenix, Arizona to escape the music industry and media scrutiny and focus on herself. She would remain here for the next three years, working on her music and learnt to love herself once again. For most part, her friends described her as very unhappy and not herself and that without music she felt useless and that she struggled to see the point in life anymore. With the help of her good friends Laurie and Sharon, she began writing and playing music again on her piano and decided to work on getting back out there. They recorded around 10 songs together and it was like a healing process for her that allowed her to carry on being the fighter that Stevie Nicks is. Throughout 1994 and 1995, John and Mick of Fleetwood Mac toured with former and new members of the band, playing all pre-Buckingham Nicks tracks, as they were also working on a new album in the meantime. In October of 1995, the remaining members of Fleetwood Mac, Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, Billy Burnett and the non-touring Christine McVie, would release the band's 16th studio album called Time. 
Christine would write a number of tracks for the album, but refused to tour after retiring years ago. They filled Stevie and Rick Vito's spots with female vocalists Becca Bramlett and guitarist Dave Mason. It would turn out to be a flop, however, as it lacked Stevie and Lindsay's raw talent and sounded much different to their unique and iconic styles. The album would struggle to crack the top 50 worldwide, while Christine McVie's single I Do only reached number 62 in Canada. The album received mostly negative reviews and was touted by critics as their worst album since the band's beginning in the late 60s. Christine McVie would announce that this will be a last album with Fleetwood Mac, while Billy Burnett and Becca Bramlett also left the band to become a country music duo, with Mick Fleetwood deciding to disband Fleetwood Mac altogether. In 1995 to 1996, Mick Fleetwood began working on a project and sessions with Lindsay Buckingham. Soon, John and Christine McVie would join them. While Stevie hired Lindsay and Mick to work with her on a track titled Twisted for the soundtrack to the film Twister. During May the following year of 1996, Stevie would join up with Christine, John, Mick and Steve Winwood, known for his hits Valerie and Higher Love, to perform at a private party in Louisville, Kentucky. Behind the scenes, Stevie would work again with Tom Petty and Sheryl Crow, but managed to stay away from the media spotlight. In 1997, after Stevie had walked away from the music industry, she was invited by Mick, Lindsay and John of Fleetwood Mac to perform a one-off show called A Time to Dance, held in Burbank, California, on the 12th of August in front of an invited audience. Christine would also join the cause after previously leaving the band, bringing the classic five members together once again. Together they performed an incredible live show of their hits, with Stevie's voice back to its best. Before her return, Stevie had stripped off the weight she wanted to lose by jogging and took vocal control lessons to strengthen her voice to last for the length of a tour. The chemistry between Lindsay and Stevie was clear, while also tense at times, as they shared regular gazes at each other before embracing at the end of the concert. After their highly successful live show, they would tour together for the first time since the Mirage album, performing 44 shows and bringing in a total of $36 million. On top of this, they released a live album that would become Christine McVie's last of the band. The live concert film and album, called The Dance, peaked at number one in the US, three in Australia and four in the Netherlands, and sold around 6 million copies worldwide. In 1998, Fleetwood Mac were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, with Stevie present to enjoy the celebrations. First of all, uh, it is indeed an honour to be inducted tonight. And before I make a hopefully not too long speech, I would like to thank Mr. Peter Green for forming Fleetwood Mac way back in 1967. Thank you, Peter. He left us with a stage that was to continue until today. Uh, lunacy, heartache, happiness, unhappiness, and thank God a sense of healing has come to all of us up here on this stage today. We've had a fantastic journey. The music has been a privilege for me playing with all of these guys with Peter, with Danny, with Jeremy Spencer, who can't be here tonight. On behalf of Stevie, Lindsay, John and Chris and myself, and Peter Green and everything that has been Fleetwood Mac up until today, uh, being an Englishman, I can't think of a better way than quoting a little bit of Shakespeare. And as the man said, 
If music be the food of love, play on. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. They received a number of Grammy nominations for The Dance and Stevie's performance of Silver Springs that saw a rise on the charts of their live version also. Stevie also received a Brit Award for Outstanding Contribution to Music. In the same year, Christine McVie decided to call time on her career with Fleetwood Mac. She had developed a fear of flying that had made it difficult to tour, which she was required to see a psychotherapist about, and she wanted to settle down with her husband Eddie Quintella back in England, focus on her passion for art, and study music, earning herself an honorary doctorate at the University of Greenwich. Stevie planned on releasing her next solo album before being approached by Warner Brothers to put out a three-disc box set titled Enchanted. The compilation album was released in April 1998, while the Divine Stevie Nicks compilation album was released in 1999 and wasn't as successful. On the 1st of May 2001, Stevie would finally release her sixth studio album, seven years after her last, and reach number five on the US charts. Three singles were released to moderate alternate chart success, with the tracks Sorcerer, Planets of the Universe, and Candle Bright all being written back in the Buckingham Nicks days and at the beginning of Fleetwood Mac. Other interesting tracks on the album include That Made Me Stronger, that speaks of the influence and words of wisdom that Tom Petty gave to Stevie to help her believe in herself again as a musician and songwriter while the track Fall From Grace discusses the turbulent rollercoaster ride of Fleetwood Mac and their tense reunion for the dance in 1997. Stevie toured to promote the album despite missing a few shows as she battled bronchitis and cancelling some shows due to the tragic 9-11 attacks, before reuniting in 2002 with Fleetwood Mac for their 17th and final studio album after Lindsay had planned on making a solo album, but soon Mick, John and Stevie came on board making yet another record. Stevie was now the sole female vocalist in the band, with Christine now retired. The album titled Say You Will was released in April 2003 and was received with mixed reviews, but sold reasonably well with 1.6 million copies sold worldwide. It peaked at number 3 in the US, 6 in the UK and Ireland, and 7 in New Zealand. Stevie would have more freedom with Say You Will, scoring 9 of her own songs on the 18-track album, and Lindsay having the other 9. Lindsay's single Peacekeeper and Stevie's single Say You Will became minor hits but would not reach the heights of the Rhiannon's or Gypsy type tracks. Stevie then embarked on a massive 137 show tour promoting the album with Fleetwood Mac across North America, Europe, Australia and the UK. Stevie would later reveal that she was not overly happy with how the album turned out and had disputes with Lindsay over the production of the album as well as struggling with the absence of Christine McVie. Things were still tense between Buckingham and Nicks, and would remain that way despite occasionally working together. Stevie continued touring as a solo artist, performing four shows in Vegas, performing ten alongside Don Henley, and then performing on the Gold Dust tour across the US for a further 20 shows. In the meantime, Stevie's friend and former bandmate Christine McVie would unfortunately split up with her husband Eddie Quintella, and in 2004 she would release her third studio album titled In The Meantime. During August of 2005, Stevie's father, Jess Nix, passed away, leaving Stevie extremely devastated. Her father was a strict but loving man who was supportive of her dreams and always pushed her harder to realise her potential. During March 2007, yet another compilation album of Stevie's hits was released, titled Crystal Visions, the very best of Stevie Nicks, selling around 800,000 copies worldwide and charting at 21 in the US. 
This was followed with the live studio Stevie Nicks album Soundstage Sessions in 2009 but struggled to sell over 100,000 copies and saw mild success across the US, with Stevie stating she was still very proud of the album. Stevie has always been quite charitable and became more involved in 2007 when she sold her home of 26 years in Paradise Valley for $3 million in order to focus more on her charity work. Previously in 2004, she formed her own organisation called Stevie Nicks Band of Soldiers where she looks after wounded soldiers and veterans, even purchasing loads of iPod Nanos full of music and signed by Stevie herself and gifting them to each of the soldiers to help them through the tough times. Stevie said about the gifts, I call it a soldier's iPod. It has all the crazy stuff that I listen to and my collections I've been making since the 1970s for going on the road. All the couple times in my life that I've been really down, music is what always dances me out of bed. Leading up to 2008, rumours circulated of a return to the band of Danny Kerwin, Jeremy Spencer and Peter Green, but these rumours were soon put to bed. The 1975 classic lineup of Fleetwood Mac would reunite in 2008, with the exception of Christine McVie, to go on the Unleashed Greatest Hits tour. Stevie previously had stated she would not tour without Christine until she thought of the idea for Cheryl Crow to take her place, only for this plan to fall through. So Stevie, Mick, John, and Lindsay hit the road as Fleetwood Mac. They would perform their first show in March 2009 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the US before touring the rest of the US and Canada and travelling to Europe, the UK, Australia and New Zealand, wrapping it up in December 2009. They performed a total of 81 shows, brought in $84 million and played in front of 800,000 people around the world. And once again, despite touring together, Stevie would state about Lindsay, maybe when we're 75 and Fleetwood Mac is a distant memory, we might be friends. During the tour, Stevie performed a live version of a song she wrote for the tragic hurricane Katrina called New Orleans, where it hit the worst. While another highlight was a performance at Wembley Arena in London, where Christine McVie attended the show as a member of the audience. Stevie spotted her in the crowd and mentioned how she thinks of her every day, and that she wishes she could have toured with them and be part of the band, before dedicating the song Landslide to Christine in a beautiful performance. A moment shared between two friends who had overcome so much together. Even in their 60s, Fleetwood Mac were selling out shows all over the globe and were the 13th highest grossing tour of 2019. During 2010, Stevie got to work on her first solo album since 2001 and worked with David A. Stewart of Eurythmics to produce the album. On the 3rd of May 2011, Stevie released her seventh studio album, calling it In Your Dreams. It would peak at number 3 on the US rock chart, 6 on the US Billboard 200 and 14 in the UK, selling only a couple hundred thousand copies and receiving mostly mixed to positive reviews. The album was a mix of country rock and included the Hurricane Katrina song New Orleans as well as two singles called Secret Love and For What It's Worth that made the top 20 on the US contemporary charts. Stevie would have a hand in writing all 13 tracks on the album and would tour and perform on a range of television shows to promote the album. But this was cut short due to Stevie coming down with pneumonia and the flu before getting back up and doing some more shows. In late 2011 and during 2012, Fleetwood Mac would be in mourning after three of its past members sadly passed away. The first was short-time bass player Bob Brunning during October 2011, who died at the age of 68 from a heart attack in his home. 
Following Brunning's death was former guitarist Bob Weston, who was 64 and was found dead in his home by police days after his death, after suffering from cirrhosis and having a gastro hemorrhage. To top off this bad news, guitarist Bob Welch, known for his hits in the 70s called Ebony Eyes, Sentimental Lady and Precious Love. Welch was found dead after committing suicide after struggling with a recent diagnosis of spinal injuries that would only become worse over time. He was in quite a lot of pain despite taking a strong brand of pain relief and was struggling with severe depression, sadly ending it by shooting. He was 66 years of age. These would be difficult times of grieving for Stevie as she also lost her beloved and supportive mother, Barbara Nix, in December 2012, topping off a devastating period of loss. Stevie once again returned to Fleetwood Mac in 2013, where they travelled around the US, performing 34 shows together, once again without Christine. They followed this up with an EP titled Extended Play and featured four new tracks including one written by Stevie titled Without You that was lost during the Buckingham Nicks era and was discovered by Stevie after she saw someone had uploaded it onto YouTube. Fleetwood Mac were later joined by Christine McVie in London for two shows before terrible news struck again when John McVie was diagnosed with cancer and plans to tour Australia and New Zealand had to be cancelled. Christine would be there for her ex-husband during this time, stating he was making a good recovery and that she was more than ready to rejoin Fleetwood Mac, if they would have her. In January 2014, it was announced that Christine would officially rejoin Fleetwood Mac after 16 years away from the band. From September 2014 to November 2015, the classic five members of Fleetwood Mac were reunited despite John having cancer and they performed a total of 120 shows across the US, Europe, the UK and Australia and New Zealand, calling the tour on with the show. This time becoming the sixth highest grossing tour in 2015, bringing in 200 million over the two year period, showing that they were still as popular as they had ever been. While all of this was going on, Stevie had released her eighth and currently her final studio album titled 24 Karat Gold, Songs from the Vault, on the 30th of September 2014. As the title suggests, it featured a plethora of previously unreleased tracks and features Vanessa Carlton and Lady Antebellum and would peak at number 7 on the Billboard 200 in the US and in the top 5 on numerous other charts in the country, including the rock and internet album chart. It also reached number 14 in the UK, 15 in Ireland, and 16 in Australia. The album was received well by critics, receiving positive reviews, and had some commercial success despite not having any hit singles. In 2016, through to 2017, Stevie also took the album on tour alongside another female rock legend known as Chrissy Hine and her band The Pretenders. Stevie collaborated with Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters and with Lana Del Rey, while also appearing on TV shows such as American Horror Story, which was right up her alley. But on the 21st of April 2016, Stevie would be deeply saddened, like the rest of the world, when the news broke of the death of the music legend, Prince. Stevie and Prince had always had a special bond, and she was broken-hearted when she heard the news and was kicking herself that they never performed live together. Stevie also stated, Had I ever in a million years thought that we would lose him, I would have made sure that that would have happened, and it didn't. So that's just one of those things in your life where you say, I really missed out. That should have happened. So whenever I play Stand Back from this day forward, Prince will be standing next to me. The following year on July 9th, 2017, Stevie would perform alongside Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers at Hyde Park for the British Summertime Festival. 
but just several months later, on the 2nd of October 2017, yet another friend of Stevie's, a music legend, would pass away when Tom Petty was found dead from a cardiac arrest caused from an accidental prescription drug overdose. Stevie once again would be shattered by this loss, losing two close friends within the industry in the space of two years. Stevie later revealed both Prince and Tom Petty told her she would die first due to her earlier drug taking and rock star ways, but Stevie now outlived the both of them. She also stated in an interview with the 1975's Matt Healy that she often calls upon her spirit guides, Prince, Tom, her father and her mother when she is nervous about a performance and says, Prince, walk with me, Tom, rock with me and the rest of you spirits, just stay close. This gives Stevie the strength to carry on and she says she feels them with her. Stevie believes in another side that those that die pass on to and that she has been visited by her mother and that this belief is her own personal religion. During 2017, Lindsay and Christine released an album together called Buckingham McVie after having a backlog of work that was originally intended to be for a final Fleetwood Mac album. It became quite popular and peaked at number 2 in Scotland, 5 in the UK and 9 in Ireland. It included input from Mick and John, but none whatsoever from Stevie. But in 2018, things turned ugly when Lindsay Buckingham was dismissed from the band due to differences and tensions rising over what era of songs would be played at their upcoming tour they had been planning for a lengthy period. As Lindsay wouldn't agree with the direction of the tour the others wanted to go down, and Stevie also having a number of issues with Lindsay, believing he was being condescending and rude, Mick Fleetwood felt he had no choice but to kick him out. Lindsay then filed a lawsuit over the matter against Fleetwood Mac for breaking their contract agreement. Eventually the matter was settled with Lindsay stating he was happy enough for the settlement. Yet again, Fleetwood Mac would have no choice but to undergo a personal change and decide to bring in former Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers member, Mike Campbell, and former Crowded House and Split Ends member, Neil Finn. Neil Finn was known for being the New Zealander and adopted Australian singer, songwriter and guitarist who together with his band and brother Tim Finn had hits like Better Be Home Soon, I Got You, Something So Strong and Don't Dream It's Over. As they made plans to tour, some more sad news was revealed in June 2018 when yet another former member, Danny Kerwin, passed away from pneumonia at the age of 68. Christine McVie would honour him with a beautiful statement as she said, Danny Kerwin was the white English blues guy. Nobody else could play like him. He was a one-off. Danny and Peter Green gelled so well together. Danny had a precise, piercing vibrato, a unique sound. He was a perfectionist, a fantastic musician, and a fantastic writer. The new lineup of Fleetwood Mac, including Stevie, Christine, John, Nick, Neil, and Mike, didn't waste any time and got straight back on the road in October 2018, performing on the tour An Evening with Fleetwood Mac for 88 shows across the US, Canada, the UK, Europe, Australia and New Zealand, wrapping up the tour in November 2019, and plans have been made for more tours and potentially more albums. In April 2019, Stevie Nicks would be honoured by becoming the first woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice after being inducted with Fleetwood Mac during 1998 and now as a solo artist. Thank you. What I want, would like to say is that this, is, this speech thing that I'm supposed to give now has been, has been following me down the sound of its voice will haunt me for the last two weeks. It's not hard for me to go and play for you, but it's very hard for me to try to tell you how, how I thank you for, 
for this, for this being the first girl in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. Sometimes I just can tell great stories because it's like, it's easy. If, I, if I'm telling a story about Prince, I can say he picked me up in his purple Camaro and we went out to his purple house in a suburb outside of Minneapolis and nobody knew where I was. And we wrote a song and he called it, They'll take her, It'll Take You Days to Find Her. And I can actually tell you a great story about that because it is what it is. But for me to tell you a story from my heart about what this means to me is very hard because this has never happened to me before. And I'm hoping that since it's never happened to me, and now only once, 22 men in for zero women, and now one woman, that what I am doing is opening up the door. For other women to go like, hey, man, I can do it. And I'm- Stevie is now 72 years of age and still going strong today. The remaining members of Fleetwood Mac are all still going strong. Christine McVie is now 76 years old, John McVie is now 74 and has made a full recovery from colon cancer, and Mick Fleetwood is now 73 and has four children of his own. Former member Lindsay Buckingham is now 70 years old and continues to create music. Fleetwood Mac has had a huge impact on inspiring music today, while Stevie herself has inspired many musicians around the world to follow their dreams and she has been a great mentor for so many young women and aspiring musicians over the years, especially with those who had struggled with drug addiction and teaching them to learn from their mistakes. Some of these include Cheryl Crow, Lady Antebellum, Delta Goodrum, Vanessa Carlton, Maddie Healy from the 1975, The Wallows, Harry Styles, Lord, Miley Cyrus, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, Courtney Love, The Dixie Chicks, Florence Welch, and even Eminem, who reportedly loved the song Rhiannon as a child. Stevie herself was a big fan of the Eagles, and in particular, the track Witchy Woman, while she also loved Pat Benatar, Kate Bush, and in modern music, the 1975. Stevie now feels very content on the career she has had, and believes her grandfather, who dreamed this life for her, would be very proud. She now enjoys music again, and feels as though the passion and fun has most definitely returned. She enjoys giving back to her fans, and approaches life more confidently than in the past. Stevie Nicks will forever be known for expressing her pain and joy through her music, that helped so many like her through tough times. She would become the reigning queen of rock and roll, and a two-time rock and roll hall of famer, in an industry dominated by men, breaking barriers and stereotypes along the way, proving that women can do it just as good, if not better. She was the mystical, enchanting and glamorous rock star that burst onto the scene with her hit Rhiannon, after being dropped as the duo Buckingham Nicks and getting a second chance with Fleetwood Mac, forming the best of many lineups the world would see. She amazed audiences with her incredible stage presence, vulnerable, relatable and emotive songwriting ability, and her incredible raspy vocals. Her very public and nasty breakup with Lindsay Buckingham still wasn't enough to break her spirit or dash her dreams of reaching the top, as she supplied hit after hit and managed to remain in the band, seeing them rise to the top by the 80s. She battled her addiction to cocaine and clonopin, scrutiny over a number of relationships and affairs, and even launched her own successful solo career. While the 90s onwards became a whirlwind of emotions and success, Stevie managed to come out on top and be the strong, independent and wise woman she is today, even outliving those that perhaps lived less dangerously. 
Stevie Nicks would sell around 30 million albums worldwide as a solo artist and around 120 million worldwide with Fleetwood Mac and win six major awards with Fleetwood Mac in this time, including a Grammy, a Brit and AMAs. On top of this, Stevie had one number one album as a solo artist and four with Fleetwood Mac, while also scoring Fleetwood Mac's only number one song in the US of their career with the track Dreams. Stevie Nicks has had a wild career, deserving only of legendary status. Her achievements in the music industry and legacy will live on to inspire many young women to follow in her footsteps and give them the strength to stand up for their beliefs and chase their dreams, no matter the obstacles in their way. All hail the queen of rock and roll, Stevie Nicks. Okay, thank you everyone for listening. I really hope you enjoyed episode 6 featuring the Stevie Nicks story. Please make sure you like, share, rate, subscribe and leave a positive review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you would like to support the podcast by becoming a patron, head to Patreon to check out how you can keep this podcast going and sign up to one of three membership packages starting at just $1 a month, which includes extra content and bonuses. Again, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which will be revealed on our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast. Before we leave you, I would just like to pay tribute to the founding member of Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green, who passed away peacefully in his sleep at the age of 73. Without Peter, there would not have been Fleetwood Mac, and his contribution to music in the band will always be remembered. Thank you, Peter Green, and may you rest in peace. I'm your host, Adam Hampton, and this is lyrics of their life.